This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. This is the program where we give you the tools, the information you need to lead a healthier, happier life. You know, none of us were born with an owner's manual. We got to figure it out. So we like to give you the information, the ideas. Some of them you don't even need. All of them you need. Okay. Every single idea that we will give you today, you need. And if you don't, your neighbors do. So you can help them get the information they need. Boy, what a what a day for Florida, for the southeast. Um, Hurricane Matthew, by the way, ruining the, a hurricane, ruining a very good name. Not to, not to create, you know, not to you be selfish. You know somebody here. named Matthew? I know a few. I know a few. Hurricane Matthew, uh, according to the Florida governor, this is the warning. The storm will kill you. Get out. Get out of town. I don't they're, think you can make, I can't make it any clearer than words. that. After a few storms in the past where people just didn't get how serious this is, this is, the Florida governor is saying, get out, get out. Get out. Authorities urge more than 2 million people to leave their homes in coastal Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina as the storm has, is nearing. Largest mandatory evacuations in the United States since Hurricane Sandy. Does that sound familiar to you? Hurricane Sandy? Do you remember East Coast 2012 flooding? Remember how it impacted the elections in 2012? Do you remember Chris Christie brought in gov- or the president? And do you remember how that turned... Some of the tides for Romney. Do you remember that? Okay. Big, big deal. Um, Based on latest projections, Matthew could make landfall in Florida. It's a Category 4 hurricane. And uh, our prayers go out to all of you in the southeast. And holy cow. At least 15 people already killed in the Caribbean countries where the storm has hit. It's moving northwest at about 12 miles an hour, packing 125-mile-an-hour winds. It's settled over the Bahamas and Nassau. Oh, (sighs) Florida Governor Rick Scott. So please listen, listen, listen. Get out. Don't take a chance. Not worth it. Not worth it. So our prayers go out to all of you um, there in the West. Or I keep saying the West, the East. I really, uh, I'm so, every every area of the country faces something, uh, some type of disaster and it just seems so unfair to the Southeast because they get it every year, get something. Um, by the way, just to change the subject, uh, it's Mad Hatter Day. Or is it Mad Hatta? Depends on where you're from. Hatter or Hatta? Mad Hatta. Hatter? <laughs> Hardly know her. Uh, it's also Garlic Lovers Day. So, you know. If you are Count Dracula, you like Garlic Day. No, you hate Garlic Day. I have a bunch of great vampire jokes. Why? Why not? Is the better question. <laughs> do, you, do you find a need in your life to bring up a good... Hey, have you heard the one about the vampire? Do you bring that up very often? Um, you'd be surprised how often I they come in handy. Especially when I come in contact with vampires... Wow. They're really handy. Because instead of biting me, I can get them to laugh. What, what you might need, yeah, 
What you might need are more jokes about clowns. We got to talk about clowns today because it's out of it's just out of control. Clowns. My kids are afraid now. I feel like I talk to a clown every day. (laughs) You shouldn't talk about your family that way, Jeff. Right. We got a great show. So much to talk about. Uh, First hour. We will be getting into um, the the debates Uh, officially, according to CNN and their polls. Mike Pence took the game. He he beat Tim Kaine. So Hillary Clinton won the first one, but Mike Pence won the second one. Yeah, the second one that many say doesn't matter, but I think it does matter. So maybe we ought to team the two of those up? Yeah, that's one way to do it. If only it worked that way. I know. And, and Mike Pence has the hardest job, I've said it a billion times, in the world. So it's a big deal. Big job. But um, we will be speaking with a true blue expert in the field of presidential debates. He wrote a book, Presidential Debates, Risky Business on the Campaign Trail. We're going to get his insights as we, as we are coming upon another, another debate between the presidential candidates uh, in this, uh, I think, this weekend. So we'll get to all that fun. But uh, first, of course, let's get to the headlines with Sadie Nielsen. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up? Democratic vice presidential nominee Tim Kaine reflected on his debate performance, admitting to a crowd of supporters that he got dinged a little bit for interrupting too much. During Tuesday's presidential debate, Kaine interrupted GOP Mike rival Mike Pence a whopping 70 times, according to an ABC News analysis. Pence interrupted Kaine 40 times. At a rally in Philadelphia, Kaine called the vice presidential debate feisty and described Donald Trump's running mate as a pretty good debater. He's pretty smooth, but there's one thing he can't do, and that is defend Donald Trump on anything, Kaine said. Driven by its staunch opposition to Donald Trump, The Atlantic has endorsed Hillary Clinton for president of the United States, making it just the third time in the magazine's 160-year history that has made a presidential endorsement. Labeling the Republican presidential nominee a demagogue, a sexist, a know-nothing, and a liar, The Atlantic editors encourage their readers to act in defense of American democracy and elect his opponents. The last time The Atlantic took sides in a presidential election was in 1964 when it sided with Lyndon B. Johnson due to similar fears about his opponent, Barry Goldwater. It is the only other presidential endorsement. Uh, It came 104 years later when it backed Abraham Lincoln. Donald Trump's son, Eric, said Tuesday night that the Republican presidential nominee pays a tremendous amount of tax after being put to rest questions about whether his father has paid uh, federal income taxes in recent years. On Tuesday night, Trump faced questions about the returns. Eric, my question is, has he paid federal income taxes over the last 18 years, yes or no? A reporter asked. There's no question about it. We pay tremendous taxes, he said. When will we see it? The reporter asked. Listen, when the audit is over, my father will release it, he said, adding, of course I've seen my father's tax returns. My father pays a tremendous amount of tax. As a company, we've paid a tremendous amount of tax. Neither, Nearly all registered voters surveyed in the recent poll, 86% say they see paying taxes as every American civic duty, while 12% say they see taxes as an unnecessary burden to be avoided. And finally, yes. um, so with all the storms going on lately, here's mm-hmm. another storm that kind of ended kind of funny. Uh, a thunderstorm forced a college lacrosse team to end early. So both teams decided to settle the contest by playing rock, paper, scissors. Oh, wow. Western Michigan University and Dayton University took the un 
took to the unorthodox method of deciding the game after Lightning forced the two teams off the field. Mm. Due to Lightning, the Dayton and WMU game was settled with the best three out of three out of five. Come on, Jimmy. Bats. Go rock. Um, WMU were victorious in the first round. Um, uh, they chose scissors over course. Dayton's paper. Uh-huh. Scissors always beats always paper. Always beats paper. Yeah. Oh, man. So I think that's the first time I've ever no, heard d- of a sports game settled like that. Like, how do you do you just walk away dejected because your captain chose the wrong? Oh, yeah. Jimmy, you always go paper. Always. Paper over rock. Come on. I bet nobody got a concussion. Not one concussion. Nope. In that match. I wish they would have settled the uh, baseball game that way last night. Really? Which Very one? disappointing. Which game? The Giants-Mets game. Who won? The Met- you, you're a Giants fan. No. Oh. Oh, sorry. No. Okay. Dodgers must- fan. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, so Cal. Yeah. So uh, Giants won. Yes. It was 0-0, neck and neck, most of the game till the ninth inning when the Giants hit a three-run home run. Oh, brother. And that's smart. that was the quietest crowd I've ever heard. <laughs> well, that's too bad. See, rock, paper, scissors would have been better. Yeah. Thanks, Sadie. You know, um, that is uh, – where do we start? I can't get the poor people of Florida out of my mind. Two million people need to evacuate. That's crazy. And South Carolina, too, and Georgia, all the way up the coast. Has Utah ever had – Hurricane? A major evacuation of any kind? Um, no. But we used to test nuclear weapons here. Oh. Those were the good old days. Are there any that are somewhere still active? Probably. We don't like to talk about those. They they used to you know, go out and watch the nuclear explosions. Everyone would line up and just watch them. You know, many, many miles away. And then the downwinders received radiation and then got really sick and then there were a lot of lawsuits against the government. That kind of explains a lot. Yeah. I don't know what that meant, but that seemed kind of, Yeah. We, uh, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, boy, Donald Trump is on a roll. <laughs> uh, just to kind of make up after the debate, Donald, in a weird way, kind of took credit for Pence's great success. Mike Pence did an incredible job, and I'm getting a lot of credit because that's really my first so-called choice. That was my first hire, as we would say in Las Vegas. And, and I'll tell you, he's a good one. He was phenomenal. I'd argue that Mike had the single most decisive victory in the history of vice presidential debate. <laughs> That is a coveted spot right there. Well, it is, and it's a. Um, it means a lot coming from a man that you know has studied in in depth all of the vice presidential debates. He's studied. He's pre- well. He hasn't prepared. Do you want to bet he couldn't name ten vice presidential candidates? But I'm sure he could talk his way out of it, <laughs> and uh, he'd come out unscathed. But for the guy that uh, – I mean, really, when you think about it, if, if Donald hadn't chosen Pence, then obviously Pence couldn't have won. So, boom, win for him. Uh, Trump also, because um, he's basically Wikipedia, Wicked Trump, 
he he um, he wanted to teach those people from Nevada, which is how we say it in the West, Nevada, uh, how to pronounce the name of their state. Nevada, Nevada. And you know what I said? You know what I said? I said when I came out here, I said nobody says it the other way. It has to be Nevada, right? And if you don't say it correctly, and it didn't happen to me, but it happened to a friend of mine. He was killed. One died. One man died because of mispronouncing Nevada. He's, he, I think Trump, he did it incorrectly. He was meaning to say Nevada, Nevada, because her friend said it Nevada. Right. And he said it incorrectly, and then he was killed. But if you say it, if you believe it, and you say it long enough, then it becomes true. Exactly. Except for the people in the West and the people in Nevada. See, this is the type of information that people will only get on the Mate Townsend show. <laughs> I'll be your first mate. Arg. <laughs> uh, by the way, uh, a lot of talk in the debates, vice presidential debates, about uh, Trump and Putin. And so Donald Trump wanted to make sure we got that clear. You ever see Hillary Clinton when she wants to talk tough? about Putin. They say, Donald Trump loves Putin. I don't love. I don't hate. We'll see how it works. We'll see. Maybe we'll have a good relationship. Maybe we'll have a horrible relationship. Maybe we'll have a relationship right in the middle. I can say this. If we got along with Russia and Russia went out with us and knocked out of ISIS, that's okay with me, folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a feeling Donald just doesn't want his emails hacked. So he's trying to keep Putin happy. I don't love Putin. I don't hate him. I, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I don't want... If we could just have a great relationship with Russia... Then things could be a lot better, except for the Ukraine and, you know, Syria not working because they're backing a tyrant. If we could work together on ISIS. Imagine if you began every job that way. It could work. Might not work, yeah. but it could work. I mean, I don't hate I, I don't hate the devil. I don't love the devil. I, I will see how it goes. Not saying that Putin's the devil. I, yeah. Eyes and ears are everywhere, how do, you, how do you say the devil in Russian? Satan. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Sounds familiar. Okay. Uh, by the way, some may not know, Jeff Simpson lived in Russia for about two years. Yep. It's kind of shady sometimes. No comment. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're talking presidential debates. Business on the campaign trail. We'll get into it. Stick with us. Putting on the Ritz. Different types of wear they coat pants with stripes and cut away. Welcome back, friends. You know, weird laughs, ill-timed grunts, sniffling. And the rolling of eyes might be one way to characterize the 2016 presidential debate so far. For 56 years, the debates have, have been the key in helping undecided voters choose a candidate to support. 
The choosing of moderators, questions, candidates, and television networks is no simple equation. Here to help us see past the smoke in the mirrors is Alan Schroeder, the author of the book Presidential Debates, Risky Business on the Campaign Trail. Alan is also a professor in the School of Journalism at Northeastern University in Boston. Alan, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for the invitation. This is... uh, this is kind of timely, right, in the middle of all of the debates and having CNN just pr- pronounced, I think, today that according to their uh, polls, uh, Mike Pence won the vice presidential debate. I mean, are, are these networks walking a fine line um, when it comes to the, these debates? It seems like they, they really put their, their neck out there for some pretty ugly feedback. Well, the networks have kind of a different uh, role, depending on whether it's a debate during the primary season. Those are actually sponsored by the networks, but these general election debates that we're in the middle of now are carried by the networks, obviously, and analyzed by the networks, but they're actually produced by the uh, Independent Debate Commission. So I think there's kind of two different ways to look at it. I think it does put the networks in an awkward position when they're the, you know, when they're the ones that are putting the debates on and then also commenting about them right. and polls and all of that. But I think it's slightly different now because they are, you know, there's an arm's length between the the networks and the debates. Is the commission, the debate commission, um, is that a nonpartisan, is it a government agency? Where where is that hosted, sponsored? Who's the governing agency? Right. They are based in Washington, D.C., but they're not part of the government. They're an independent agency. Um, they call themselves nonpartisan rather than bipartisan. <laughs> and um, they've been doing the debates as sponsors since 1988. And really, that's all they do um, are debates. In their off years, they do a lot of work around the world in other countries that are democratizing or that are interested in staging debates. So they have kind of an educational component <laughs> apart from what they do every four years. But obviously right now, you know, they're just uh, their main thing is just to get these things on the air as as a professional. And as you let's just maybe look at the the first presidential debate of the 2016 season, Hillary Clinton, uh, Donald Trump, as an as an expert looking at that in, I guess, comparison to the other debates that you studied over the many years. Where does the, where does that rank? Where does that well, fit in? What is what does that look like for you? Yeah, it's pretty strange from a historical perspective. Um, that was not what we would consider by any stretch, um, you know, a kind of normal campaign debate. The vice presidential was much more kind of in keeping with what we've come to expect. Um, you know, I, the first uh, Clinton-Trump debate was was interesting for a lot of reasons. I mean, I like to look at this uh, these debates as a combination of what happens before, what happens during, and what happens after. Mm. And so when you think about what happens before, it's how the candidates prepare, how they think about the debate, how they get themselves ready, what their objectives are, you know, because you don't just show up and hope for the best. You've right. really got to, you know, this is a big, big deal, and so you've really got to think about maximizing that opportunity. So the thing that really struck me was it was that Clinton really had thought about it. She really had prepared. She had a strategy. She had all these things she wanted to get done, and she got them done, whereas Trump, I think, really didn't do that. I think he just... Uh, he just kind of thought, well, I've I've been successful so far, kind of winging it, and so he didn't really seem to have a specific um, plan of attack there. Mm. Eighty million plus viewers, yeah, second most most watched, I think, event um, 
in recent history. And he, yeah, he didn't seem like he had a plan. And and Hillary, you know, seemed to be laying traps that he yeah. would just step right into. Yeah, I thought so too. And uh, and over and over again. I mean, it wasn't just right. one thing. It was, you know, your father gave you $14 million and you've said all these horrible things. And here's, uh, you know, what you said to Miss Universe. And so, you know, she did have all these things kind of in her hip pocket that she was just waiting to introduce. And, uh, you know, you it takes discipline to do that. So, I, you know, I uh, even for people who, who, who don't agree with her politically, I think you have to look at that performance and say she definitely knew what she was doing and was far better prepared for it than her opponent. What what role do you sense that um, the moderators play? I mean, I can't – the Candy Crowley moment I, it kind of keeps coming into my head, yep. and then ever, all the pundits start arguing in the first debate that um, – it, you know, it depends what side you're on, but they're saying, you know, Lester Holt, was it, maybe got too involved. And mm-hmm. so how fair, you know, really are they? Well, I think that, um, first of all, I, I, my feeling about the moderator is that they really are there to just kind of facilitate the conversation, that it really has to be, the focus has to be on the candidates, and the candidates need to um, hold each other accountable. I think it's hard for the moderator, especially any kind of a fact-checking thing, mm-hmm. uh, is really hard to do in real time, because, look, it's a TV show, there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of battling against the clock, and to really do a fact-check, you know, you're looking sometimes at very complicated, nuanced things. You just don't have the time to really go in and and do that on live TV. And so I, I, I think the best way for people to find out if a candidate is being truthful or not is to follow the, the independent fact checks, the things outside the debate, because it's being done. It's being done a lot. Right. And then the candidates themselves, you know, somebody like we saw this a little bit with the vice presidential debates. If somebody says something that contradicts what they've said previously, then the other candidate can make that point. So I, I think the moderator does have a difficult job because uh, you're going to get criticized no mm. matter what. Uh, you're going to get criticized if you're too passive. You're going to get criticized if you're too active. And you, I mean, like we saw with the vice presidential debate, you just can't, you can't hold the horses back, right? I mean, no, it's like no. they're, and, and I guess here's a question as, as an expert, are the, the debates are to debate. They're not necessarily to fact check. It's, it's about historically, wasn't it about be persuasive? Yeah, it is a case of persuasion, but of course you you can't, you know, you have to use facts in a persuasive way. I think if anybody who stands up there and just starts, you know, making things up, that that's not going to fly because you will be held accountable, maybe not during the debate, right. but certainly in the in the analysis of the debate. But yeah, it is, it's a, you know, it's a sales job. Each candidate is there. Uh, I always say it's like a job interview. So each candidate is there to persuade the public, you know, hire me and don't hire the other person. And so how do you do that? You make your best case. You you say, here's why I would be good. You might differentiate between yourself and your opponent. Here's what I think that's better, and that's what they think that's worse. So, um, you know, that's what it is. But you do have to remain within. You can't just get up there and, you know, say say anything to get people's uh, vote. You, mm. have to, you have to operate from a basis of, of, of truthfulness. Do you remember, um, I think it was a Fox debate in the primaries where I thought they did a really good job of more finding a clip and then making the 
the person respond to the clip. Yeah, and that's a good way, and that's an integration of technology into debates. Now, at the in the general election debates, we don't tend to do that. Those tend to be more classical, just the two people mm. on a stage talking. And I, I get that. I think they want to, you know, the debate commission deliberately kind of wants to keep that simple. But certainly in the primaries, as you mentioned, you know, where you have some format experimentation, I think that is a good way to hold people accountable is show the clips. This is what you said. And do you stand by that? What's different? What's, you know, uh, what, what, what's what's wrong? So um, clips are a good way to do that. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, you do have, the, the, the candidates do have to bear in mind that anything they've said in the past is is fair game. It's likely to come out in a debate. Do, you know, um, w- when we have all these debate issues and even Donald Trump before the debates, like posturing that, I don't know if they'll be fair anyway, so mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm going to be there. How, how do they choose their moderators? Um, because I always thought maybe it would be smarter to go get um, a really renowned Harvard professor uh-huh. Or like a David well, Gergen. Yeah, he's a yeah. Harvard. He's on Harvard faculty somewhere. And get somebody yeah. – but maybe he's biased now because of the scene. I don't know. But get, get a real expert in debate that, that doesn't seem to have the polarized news media bent. Well, you know, way back in the beginning when Kennedy and Nixon were getting ready to debate, that's actually one of the things they considered is whether to use, you know, more of an academic type mm-hmm. or someone like that. And um, it, it was thought that that they, too, would be subject to political criticism, that, you know, academics aren't necessarily right. unaffiliated. <laughs> And the thought was that journalists, you know, their reputation is is on the line. And so if they're too much in the tank or if they do anything too out of line during a debate, it hurts their career. Oh, true. And that would kind of keep them that would kind of keep them in line. But how are the debate moderators chosen? The debate commission, there, it, it is basically an instinctive process. You know, there's no like formal, there's nothing like set down on the, on the, no guidelines on the website or anything. What they do is they keep an eye, the debate commissioners um, kind of keep an eye on potential people that they see on the air that they think are good, that are neutral, that don't have a reputation of being too partisan one way or the other, and who have kind of the right um, level of modesty, because if you're, you know, if you're too big a star and you go into a debate as a moderator, you may think it's about you, and it's really not about you. So I think those are the factors that they choose. They also look that they specifically want TV uh, news people because they're familiar with the TV production part of it, because mm. that's hard. Oh yeah, you know, being on on live television in front of all those tens of millions of people, you have to have done that before in order to know the timing and the camera and all of that stuff. So so those are kind of the things that they're looking for. And they, I mean, these debates work. Uh, Hillary Clinton won the first debate and picked up four points or so. Yeah, and, and they, they do, um, yet it's always a little, I, I think, um, premature to to look at, at bounces and think that, that that necessarily predicts how the rest of it's going to go. I mean, Mitt Romney also had a big bounce after the first debate in 2012, um, which he was considered to have won over Barack Obama, and yet that didn't sustain mm. uh, for very long. So, it, it, yes, it's great to get a bounce, but then the big question is what happens in the later debates, and how does that affect uh, a candidate's poll standings. Do they do they then um, 
do they change the rules? Are the rules set ahead of time, it seems like, and the rules don't change? Or do they still negotiate the rules up to the day before? Well, the rules are set down. So the rules uh, that the debate commission announced, the formats and all of that kind of thing, that's been um, – they, they actually do that even before the nominees are officially picked because they want it to be, you know, not about certain individuals, but just here's the process, whoever the individuals end up being. Um, and then right before the events, the campaigns have people uh, on site, and they'll negotiate some of the details, the production details the lighting, the, you know, how far away are the podiums. Like, uh, I'll give you a little example from this year was that Hillary Clinton is quite a bit shorter than Donald Trump. And so they built a podium that for her looked a little, you know, it was different. It was but proportional, shorter, it's yeah. proportional, so that they don't have <laughs> that discrepancy visually. So that's the kind of thing that gets negotiated last minute. But the formats and the rules are actually well in place beforehand. And how many fans they can have on them and so that you don't have sweat, sweat glistening on that upper lip? Yeah, I don't think lately um, there was a famous debate in 1976 that was done in San Francisco in the Palace of Fine Arts, which, which was an unair conditioned bu- building. It was very hot. And so they actually did install some kind of special air conditioning that just shot down onto the candidates um, who, were, who were standing at their lecterns. But generally speaking, these debates now are held in theaters or auditoriums where they have climate control. So they don't necessarily have the fans on them. Of course, the problem with fan, too, is it blows, so you don't mm. want the hair yeah. to go all crazy. And, you know, so there's other considerations. You know, it's a, uh, it really is. Uh, broadcasting is hard anyway, and then putting together an event is incredibly difficult. But, too, just because a lot can happen. And, oh, yeah. And, and it's, you've got two, you've got a powder keg, it seems like. And then, especially, the aftermath, uh, to what degree do you sense that the media sways the the, the public opinions um, just because they'll hack it for four days, five days after? Yeah, and that's why I say I like to think of it as what happens before, what happens during, and what happens after. Because the after piece of it that you're asking about here does have a lot of power. You know, things can get kind of reinterpreted um, in the analysis. And so I'll give you a little example just from this week was the vice presidential. Uh, The polls do declare Mike Pence the winner of that. Um, And yet a lot of the media coverage yesterday and continuing to today has been less favorable toward Pence based on some of the things that he said compared to some of the things that had been said previously. Right. So, you know, you get this whole thing of, yes, what happens during the debate is incredibly important, but yes, the aftermath equally has, you know, the ability to kind of shape the conversation. We're speaking with Alan Schroeder, a professor in the School of Journalism at Northeastern University in Boston. He's the author of the book Presidential Debates, Risky Business on the Campaign Trail. We'll be right back continuing the discussion. Stick with us. Moving to the country, I'm going to eat a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country. I'm gonna eat me a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country. Welcome back, friends. A lot of peaches. This is the presidents of the United States wrote this song. Obviously from Georgia. 
You wonder which president. Jeff's wondering which president wrote this. <laughs> I think they all did. Lyndon Johnson. They just got together. Joining us on the phone is uh, Dr. Alan Schroeder. He is a, um, a professor and uh, in the School of Journalism at Northeastern University in Boston and has been studying debates and uh, in depth, in fact, wrote a book, the author of uh, Presidential Debates, Risky Business on the Campaign Trail. And we've been picking his brain about the, the latest debates, those that are still to come. Dr. Schroeder, thank you again so much for being with us. You're welcome. Do you... Do you, as an expert, sit and watch these? I mean, it seems like the discourse of this election, really from for the last year and a half, has been at a at a much lower level or standard maybe um, than historic debates. Is that and, and and just elections? Is that naive of me, or have we just gone to a new level of low, or has it always been kind of ugly? Well, I think we've gone to a new level of low, uh, both in the substance of what gets talked about and also the tone. You know, I think traditionally debaters have shown respect for each other, that, you know, they stand up there and they recognize that they're going to disagree on their policies and their proposals. But it's always been considered bad form to to kind of personally criticize or go after your opponent um, because, you know, the point of a debate, and I go back to my job interview analogy, this has to be about the voters and what they need and what they care about. And so if you're just up there slinging mud, how does that help you know, anyone in the audience uh, or any any of the citizens in the country. So I, I you know, I do think this year has been particularly bad. And, and you know, I, I I probably will offend people by saying this, but I a lot of that is Donald Trump's fault. Yeah. I mean, he, frankly, the tone in those uh, primary debates uh, really, I, I, I think, set kind of a low bar. And it has you know, affected somewhat, I think, what's going on now in the general election debates, although these debates are are going to be pitched at a much higher level. Um, I I totally agree. And I I think when when I think of Trump as well, um, it's interesting how one non-politician, um, and, and especially Trump, it's not even a non-politician, but politicians, whether you like them or not, they, they do kind of live by a code. And some of that code is self-preservation, too. Like, don't let all the secrets out. Um, but Donald just kind of throws anything out there, and, and we'll see if it sticks. But I, I guess in the debate, we we have two candidates that a lot of people don't trust, mm-hmm. right? And so what what good is a debate if we don't trust people anyway? Well— uh, you know, it's unfortunate that we that we're at this point with the lack of trust on the candidates, and uh, it is historically high for for both of them. There's no no getting around that. Um, but you know. <sighs> I think you have to watch debates and realize that these are human beings. They have flaws like everybody else, and nobody's perfect. You know, I, I, I think a lot of times when we vote, especially for president, because it's such an idealized position, I think we, 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 we want, you know, we have this kind of ideal version of who we would like to be president, and yet those aren't the choices in front of us sometimes. So I think you have to get over the fact that 
that that these are not going to be perfect angels that mm-hmm. you're voting for. So you listen to what they have to say. You listen to how smart they are. You listen to how they react under the pressure of the debate moment. You see how they deal with each other. You see how they deal with the moderator. You see how they deal with the audience. And little by little, you're just trying to take a measure of them as human beings and then think about, okay, which one of these would be better as president? And just recognize right off the bat that the choices would not necessarily be the ones you would make if you could start from a blank slate. I really love um, like uh, the idea of making kind of an amalgamation of everybody. Like I cannot get over Hillary Clinton's preparation for so, for so many years. She just she just wants to be more ready, and. Yeah. Um, what I like about that idea is so if she spent, let's say, months preparing for that first debate, none of that none of that preparation's lost. She now can use that in the second debate and right. the third debate. Um can if Donald Trump didn't prepare, as we, we kind of believe he didn't and he stated he didn't, you you can't in a week or ten days prepare enough, can you? You can't make up a lack of preparation for a debate, can you? Well, it's very difficult because you're bringing onto that stage uh, not just the the specific prep that you've done for the debate, but also your whole body of your knowledge. history. Yeah, yeah, your history, your record, everything that you've learned, everything that you've you've thought about. Aleppo. Yeah, exactly. So you have the Gary Johnson problem where you're being asked things that you simply are not familiar with. Um, I think, you know, back to 2008, the people who worked with Sarah Palin uh, had a very difficult time because she was coming at it as the governor of a small state. She didn't really have foreign policy knowledge. And so they're trying to do two things in prepping her for, for the debate. They're trying to get the mechanics down, the performing stuff down, and then they're trying to cram her head full of factual information about stuff that's really complicated and that would require a great deal of study. So, yeah, I mean, this is Mm. why I get the whole thing about outsiders being attractive in a political world where it seems like nothing's functioning. But on the other hand, there's something to be said for experience and knowledge about how politics and governments and and international relations, how that works. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, as you talk talked about and alluded to earlier about um, you need to have a goal. You need to have a prepper. The preparation then should be guided toward your goal. And you saw it with Tim Kaine. His -hmm. goal was to just keep bringing it back to Trump's lack of ability, temperament, skills, taxes, everything. Always bring it back to Trump. Always bring it back to Trump. And you, you, it's amazing when you do watch the debate that way, you can see who they're targeting. You can see that Pence was targeting Women, it seemed like females, suburban, uh, that want safety, that want strength. Yes, and you could also see that Pence had a very clear strategy, too, and his was more uh, to kind of come across as as calm, as unrattled, Mm -hmm. as someone who seemed quite reasonable. You know, he was positioning himself as the contrast to that kind of erratic Donald Trump who showed up for the first debate. 
and and Pence was able to execute that strategy. And then, yeah, Tim Kaines was to just get all that Trump stuff out there to quote him, to to remind people of all the things that he said, and and you know get some kind of blood on the table that was going to get left there, no matter how much hmm. Mike Pence tried to clean it up. And and frankly, Mike Pence didn't try to clean no. it up all that much. His thing was to kind of try to float above it. But yeah, you if you watch and you and you watch with the idea that. Most people go into a debate with a strategic imperative. Uh, you can figure out what that is, and as you say, who's being targeted, which demographic, and which target audience is being aimed at. I guess Kane too. You know, if he could leave enough blood on the floor, then Hillary doesn't have to. She can just yeah. kind of float above all of that, and um, and and maybe too uh, steer it her way. What do you think coming up that now a Sunday debate? It seems like uh, not a I don't know. Maybe it is a good day for a debate. But, you know, during the primaries, when they were kind of stuffing these debates in on the weekends, they didn't seem to get as much attention. Why do you think they're doing it on a Sunday? Is that a good choice? And then give us your view of what you what we should be looking for in this Sunday's presidential debate. Well, Sunday is actually the highest-rated television night of the week, so it's actually probably a night that will grab a lot of people. Mm. Um, now, it's uh, how the dates are chosen. The dates are chosen about a year in advance, and they, uh, the debate commission, kind of looks at the calendar. They, you know, they have to take out all the. There's some religious holidays, some federal holidays. They have to get all that off. They they try to look at the big sporting events and not compete directly with those, although it's kind of impossible to do that. Um, and then they, when it comes down to it, there aren't that many days left. They have to have a certain amount of time between the debates. They have to have a certain amount of time between the last debate and election day, et cetera, et cetera. So it ends up being a, you know, they don't have a lot of wiggle room on when these things actually uh, run. Now, as far as what do we expect for Sunday, it's a different format. It's the town hall format. So you're going to have people in the audience in St. Louis, Missouri, asking questions of both the candidates. The candidates will not know what the questions are. The moderators, and this time there are two moderators, uh, the moderators will know because the the people in the audience show up in the afternoon and spend the whole time there, Mm. write down their questions on cards. The moderators go through the cards before airtime and figure out which ones are going to make it onto the air. But But the audience sits there. They don't know whether they're going to get called on or not. They know what they wrote on their card. But they don't necessarily know that they're going to be uh, asking it on TV, so it's kind of tense for the for the questioners because they're sitting there, on the one hand, probably wanting to get called on, and on the other, thinking, uh, "Please don't call on me. I'm terrified." <laughs> what a, so what an interesting kind of one! Works. Yeah, but the audiences now will be will they be able to clap? Will the candidates be able to kind of stir the audience? Well, they're not supposed to. The town hall audience gets very specific instructions that they really are, are to remain neutral. And, um, the yeah, the candidates may try to pander or throw out applause lines or that kind of thing, but it's not a rally. And I think that most um, that most of the people in the audience respect that. They understand that the 100 or 200 of them that are there on the stage are stand-ins for the 340 million Americans. Yeah. And so... I think they take it seriously. They've also done some of these town halls in St. Louis before, and that that has they've had good success there. That tends to be a pretty serious audience, I would say. Does the format favor either candidate? I don't know that it does. Um, it's a 
It's a tricky format for all can- candidates because they can't anticipate what people in the audience are going to want to talk about. You know, they can usually, if it's a journalist, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they deal with journalists all the time. So yeah. they have a pretty good idea of what the reporters would ask. But they don't have an idea necessarily what people in the audience do. Um, but both of these people, Trump and Clinton, have done a lot of town halls. So I expect they're both fairly experienced um, in the format. Mm, wow. Interesting stuff. Well, Dr. Schroeder, we appreciate you, and uh, we'll probably have to have you back just to straighten everything out once this thing's over. We uh, we definitely will need that. Dr. Alan Schroeder is his name. Go check out the book, uh, Presidential Debates, Risky Business on the Campaign Trail. Again, Dr. Schroeder is a professor in the School of Journalism at Northeastern University in Boston. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, wrap up hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So Sunday night, must-see TV. The second presidential debate, you're not, you're not going to want to miss that. Um, one reason is because apparently uh, this election is causing a lot of arguments in families as well. Have you noticed? Have you gone through that experience? Uh, you you know, go to a family party. You make some flippant comment about one of the candidates. And the next thing you know, you're duking it out in the front yard with uh, Aunt Jane. It ain't pretty. Uh, I guess here's the deal. If we can't trust that our candidates, you know, play clean and will step up, then why don't we just trust that we will? One of the rules I use a lot when I coach couples in their relationships is I, I teach them that we have to break this trend. It's called logical force. I think I've mentioned it on the show before, where we do things in our world that are logical, even if they're immoral, right? So if someone hits you, um, it's logical that you have to hit them back. If somebody offends you, it's logical that you need to be offensive back. I think that's called Trump logic. Trump logic. If, uh, yeah, if, if all of a sudden somebody crosses you, then you need to go make sure they pay. No, no matter how logical that is, it's not probably moral. Um, It feels good to get mad at the neighbor that has been a jerk to your child. I mean, that's logical that you should probably be a jerk back. But it's if it's not moral in your own moral compass, in your own moral world, if it doesn't jive with what you want to be and who you are, if it's not something that you want mentioned at your funeral— then it's probably not your highest self. And if it's not your highest self, then you've debased yourself. Even if it's logical, debasing yourself means you will lose peace of mind. And I think in our country, a lot of us are willing to do things logically that we don't necessarily believe are moral or that don't necessarily jive with who we want to be or that don't take us or our country to the highest level. Now, I know this sounds Pollyanna-ish, but in the end, your peace is only going to come from living your principles and your moral code. So 
when we sit and think about this election, you've got to dig deep, deep, deep into your moral code and find out morally what is your response to this type of an election and make the decision. And I, however you make it, you make it. But don't make the decision based just on logic. Because remember, you're dealing with a, a political system that really is illogical, right? And so your peace in the end will come better from you just living your principles and more so than just living pure logic. So again, if you're frustrated by the election, you can change your part of it and even change your frustration by simply knowing you made the best moral choice you could make. Not the best logic sometimes. Sometimes just the best moral choice. Interesting, huh? Well, there is no moral choice. Well, there is. There is. It's the one that you'd be okay having your kids hear about at your funeral in 50 years. Just an idea. Hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. It's in the can. We'll be right back. Stick with us. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Man, oh man, what a great show we got for you. It's all lined up, folks. Today, by the way, Garlic Lovers Day. This is the day that you drive your lover away. In biblical times in all parts of the earth, it has cured countless sufferings and ills. If we understood what the garlic is worth, we would throw out our poisonous pills. You said it, lady. Get rid of them poisonous pills and just take garlic. It is Garlic Lover's Day. By the way, I am a garlic lover. I uh, I can tell. I, <laughs> you can smell. I when I lived in Argentina, I had a stomach worm. I had two of them. I like where this is going so far. Okay, their names were Slick and Slider, two tapeworms that were fantastic friends of mine. And I I took garlic pills to get rid of them. Did it work? I don't think so because when I came home, I still had some. But let me just tell you this: I smelled. Fantastic. Every day I could taste spaghetti dinner. That smells yummy. Even when I didn't have spaghetti. So do the worms just develop an affinity for the garlic uh-huh. pills or something? Yeah. Exactly. There you go. And I had this hankering all the time for garlic bread. I don't know why. So get rid of them nasty pills and instead take garlic pills. Did you buy that uh, garlic bread and pasta deal over at Olive Garden? No, that for was twenty five hundred dollars. Forty five. Oh my goodness! Wasn't it? Yeah, no, I didn't do that. That was out of my price range. Plus, I can't eat that much. I mean, I can't eat enough to make it worth my while. Take the family. Garlic Lovers Day. It's also, and by the way, we are so lucky today. It's Mad Hatter's Day, um, but we. In a few minutes, are going to have an interview with the Mad Hatter. Remember, we introduced uh, you. He's a candidate running for president. The Mad Hatter is. He's uh, running for the Tea Party with the Tea Party 
affiliation. Were we going to play that interview that he did the yeah. first time he was on? Mm-hmm. We're okay, going to go back, great. play the interview, and then we will do the interview with the real Mad Hatter. And he's a little frustrated about the fact of the debates that he's not in. He he won't let me talk about that, but he's he's mad. He's in there right now with Sadie. She's, I know. Looks like she's having a good time with them. Well, I've, yeah, they're. They're hugging on each other. So we'll get we'll get to the Mad Hatter in just a few minutes. Also, uh, a little later in the show, we'll be talking um, about so so many other things. For example, um, what what do you think about when you like a brand on Facebook? Do you do you even know what that like actually means? I don't like anything on Facebook. Well, that's the problem. You like the Mad Hatter? Yeah, he's all right. He's a good guy. Uh, well, we'll be speaking with an expert on marketing and branding and tell you a researcher and find out what it actually means when you like something and what it doesn't mean, what it means to uh, you know the companies that are trying to lure you in. Pretty interesting research there as well. We'll also get into a bunch of other headlines, um, some of them you'll even want to know about. Again, we're here to give you the information that you need to live healthier, happier lives and Later in the show, uh, Caitlin's going to come in and surprise us with another segment. She won't tell us what it's about. She always likes the surprise. So we'll have a surprise coming up um, a little bit later in the show. Plus, wow, loaded. Tons of stuff to talk about. And to kick it all off, who better to start with than Sadie Nielsen with the headlines from around the country. Sadie, what's going on? Former Vice President Al Gore will hit the campaign trail with Hillary Clinton in the coming weeks. Democrats are hoping that Gore, who served with Clinton's husband during his administration, can help Democratic, the Democratic presidential nominee appeal to millennial voters who are concerned about climate change. With polls suggesting that the third-party candidates, including Gary Johnson and Jill Stein, could potentially tip the election to Donald Trump if the final vote is close, Democrats are hoping that Gore can make the case that voting for an alternative candidate can have lasting consequences. A not-so-subtle reminder that Green Party candidate Ralph Nader may have tipped tipped Florida from Gore to George W. Bush in 2000. Texas doctors have done the first womb transplants using live donors in the United States. Four women who have been born without a uterus received one in operations last month at Baylor University Medical Center at Dallas. Three of the wombs have been had to be removed because of poor blood flow, but the hospital said in a statement Wednesday that the fourth recipient still has hers and is showing no signs of rejection. The hospital did not identify any of the donors or recipients. President Obama on Wednesday commented on the news that the Paris Agreement to combat climate change will go into effect next month, calling it a possible turn of point for our planet. The deal signed in Paris last April commits countries to take action to slow rising global temperatures and requires governments to present their plans for reducing emissions. With the addition of Canada, Nepal and seven European Union countries that have now ratified the deal, the agreement has enough countries to take effect. Mr. Obama said the Paris Agreement is a reminder that the idea that no nation, not even one as powerful as ours, can solve this challenge alone. And finally, yes, Matt, are you a fan of um, Apple products? Yes. How much do you like Apple products? Uh, I like them seven on the Apple-like unit scale. Okay, that's that's fairly really high. Very technical. So um, Apple enthusiasts have quickly exhausted the stock of a scented candle designed to smell like a new Mac computer. Oh, brother. It is called the new Mac candle (laughs) um, created by 12 South, an online retailer specializing in Apple accessories. It sold out in 24 hours. According to the product description, it's a $24 candle hand poured in Charleston. 
uh, South Carolina using 100% soy wax and features scent notes of mint, peach, basil, lavender, mandarin, and sage. That idea is just the worst. I thought so too. Does it have um, a head jack port? So you could plug a head jack, um, Apple, headphone into it? Apple declined to reason why they actually didn't stick it in. Mm, man. So I'm just surprised the wick is in there still. <sighs> I know. I, You know what? Those wickless candles Oh yeah, drive me crazy. Mm-hmm. But you know Apple's going to make one. An apple, none of those smells that you just listed, those whatever the ingredients – that doesn't that's I have a MacBook. I have two. Yeah, I don't recall my Mac smelling like mint, peach, basil, lavender, mandarin, sage. No, no but when I'm on above. my when I'm when I'm on my laptop, like in the produce section uh-huh. or in the um herbs section. Uh-huh. Because you do that. A quite lot frequently. of times I go to the herb section and then just pop open my MacBook. I it's, it smells like that. Interesting. Sometimes. I would think it'd be a better idea to have like a scratch and sniff. MacBook Pro that smelled like an apple. Genius. It's a great idea. Scratch, 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 scratch. <laughs> ah. It's like the new car smell. I mean, I'd rather my Mac smell like a new car. Yeah. I mean, now that's a smell. Me too. Mm. New car smell. Thank you, Sadie. Man, we got, a, we got a big show. Again, our prayers go out to all of you in the southeast uh, awaiting Hurricane Matthew, sadly ruining a very good name. Matthew, by the way, uh, is a, the Bible definition of Matthew means gift from God. Really? I'm having, I'm having a feeling that many in Florida don't feel that way. I could agree with that, but uh, I think you're mispronouncing it. It's actually Matthew. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. Hey, uh, we, we talked about it um, earlier. We are honored today, uh, folks, to have our next guest coming to join us, um, the Mad Hatter. Um, made famous, <laughs> just just you know, Lewis Carroll made famous. I don't want to talk too much about it. I just want to get to the great guest. Um, we did a story on him about how he's running for president, and I think the best way to set up uh, our our guest is to just learn a little bit about him, and then let's get him in here and find out how he feels like he's doing in the race. A little, uh, a little piece of information, remember, put together by Ron, Br- Ron Brokaw, one of our great um, journalists here on the Matt Townsend Show, and the Mad Hatter. This is Ron Brokaw with an exclusive interview. I'm sitting here with the newest third-party candidate to run for president under the Tea Party movement. This peculiar little man is known by everyone simply as the Mad Hatter. Mr. Hatter, thank you for being here. Could you please tell us why you joined the Tea Party movement? Well, when I heard there was a tea party, I rushed over as fast as I could. It's been so long since I've been to one, and I'm just mad about tea. Does it bother you, Mr. Hatter, that according to polls, the majority of Americans don't support the Tea Party movement? Oh, I simply don't understand people who don't like tea. Why, many years ago, a group of fellows got together for a tea party. Only instead of drinking the tea, they were throwing tea into the harbor. I mean, what a waste of perfectly good tea. Oh, it was the silliest tea party I've ever seen. Do you mean to say you were witness to the Boston Tea Party in 1773? Sir, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? Oh, let me see. What day is it? It's the 12th of August. Oh, 
Oh my goodness! It's my unbirthday. Well, it's mine too. Oh, what a small world this is! Oh, in that case, allow me to bring out my running mate for a special song. Oh,、uh, that's not necessary, Mister Hatter. Oh, nonsense! Don't let's be silly, Mister Brokaw. Oddly enough, this is one of the sanest interviews I've conducted. Until next time, this is Ron Brokaw. Wow! Thank you, Ron. What do you do? That is an incredible、uh, interview, Ron Brokaw. Introducing、um, our candidate,、uh, we are so grateful to have him joining us today in studio. By the way, the Mad Hatter—he is running for president of the United States, and we'd like to just welcome him in here. Get him in here, Sadie. If you could get him in, that would be fantastic. Mr. Hatter, come on in. Come on in. Let me just take a seat here. It's it's set a little. Yeah, it's I, it's a that's a slippery chair. The last、so. person must have been、yeah. very tall. It's a yeah. Okay. It, yeah, we'll help you up there. Thanks, Sadie, for helping him up there, giving him a leg up right into that chair. You, you okay, Mr. Hatter? You, oh, I'm just splendid. Thank you for asking, Mr. Townsend. <laughs> do, you, uh, do, do you, welcome. I guess is is the best way to begin this.、Um, let me ask you something here,、uh, Mr. Hatter. Do I call you Mr. Hatter or?、Uh, Mad? You can call me whatever you want. Just don't call me late for tea. <laughs> okay.、Uh, well, thanks for visiting us. You know, I, I guess this is sort of your birthday that we're celebrating here. I, you know, I'm so used to celebrating my unbirthday. I, I, I just don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when、uh, when we were looking into your background as we were about to have you on here, we pulled some information from the internet. Lewis Carroll wrote about you in his book Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. But it's interesting in the book he never mentioned you as mad. So so where does the mad of Mad Hatter come from? Oh, I don't know. It's probably from my affiliation with the Tea Party, Mister Townsend. <laughs> <laughs> the Tea Party, like you mean, like mad, like angry, mad, or kind of like crazy mad? Yes. Okay. Okay.、Uh, you know, another thing we learned about you is、um, that there is an actual Batman villain who is named after you. Were, were you aware of this?、Uh. Oh no, I was not aware of that, Mister Townsend. That's just so very rude. Well, you know, I tell you, when I'm sworn in as the Tea Party president, my first act will be to get rid of identity theft. I tell you that. When when you're sworn in as president, Mister Hatter, you know, with all due respect,、uh, you are ranked about twentieth, thirtieth in the polls. Oh, thank you, Mister Townsend. But, you know, it's actually that's not. That's not usually seen as a good thing, but、um, but I guess so. You're you're saying you're going to go with identity theft as part of your platform. What other what other pieces make up your platform? Hmm. Let's see. My platform. Well, I do want to see more platforms in this world. You can never have too many platforms, Mister Townsend. I, I also want to see less people wasting tea. What a such a disgraceful thing to do, wasting tea. Oh, and also higher taxes for the upper class. <laughs> do um. Wow. Okay. Just throw that in there.、Uh, speaking of taxes, um. 
you do and taxes are a big thing with Donald Trump and and all the talk about taxes. You you do have revenue streams because you run the Mad Hatter shops at Disneyland. Um, I'm wondering if you have paid your taxes from the revenue you make in the Mad Hatter shops. Well, let me answer that question by posing another question. Why is a raven like a writing desk? Hmm. Uh, I don't know. Why is a raven like a writing desk? Uh, Pardon me? Why is a raven like a writing desk? Oh, Mr. Townsend, you've just gone stark raving mad. Maybe you should be in my cabinet. Um, okay. Mr. Hatter, okay, when you're elected, what will you do about Aleppo? What do you mean? You mean the skin disorder or the animal? No, 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 no. Aleppo, it's in Syria. Oh, I never touch the stuff. Yeah, I'm more of an eggs and toast with a cup of tea in the morning type of guy. <laughs> okay. Uh, Hillary Clinton, she's the front runner. Uh, do you have any views about Hillary? Oh, yes. If you ask me, she needs a hot cup of tea. Not only does it help with sickness, but it also makes you more relatable. I guess she needs tea because she's sick. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, well, thanks for coming on the show. You know, if the whole president thing doesn't work if out. it doesn't work out. Oh, Mr. Townsend, don't let's be silly now. Okay. okay so, so let's say, let's say, you know, you'd choose not to be president. If that were to happen. So um, what are you going to do if you're not president? Oh, I don't know. Let's see. Well, I, I'd i probably buy the Miss Universe pageant. I've heard they're looking for a new owner, you know. <laughs> mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, OK, man, time just flew right by. We uh, we probably got to break it up here. Thank you, Mr. Hatter, for uh, for your time. Thank you. And uh, Sadie can help you get out of that chair. Oh, thank you very much, Mr. Townsend. Yeah, Sadie, lift with your legs. Lift with your legs. Okay. That's good stuff. Um, wow. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Mr. Hatter. Mm. Oh, it's our first presidential candidate interview in studio. Yep. You know, it's, it's different than I thought it would go. Uh, when I thought of my radio show having a presidential candidate... I thought, wow, that's huge. That's a big deal. Just seemed different. Anyway, we'll take a break. We'll come back. When we come back, we're talking about Facebook, what a like actually means to a brand, because everyone's chasing them, right? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Social media is continuing a trend of personalizing your account with the things that matter most to you. Based off of what you post or what you like, each platform can then advertise new pages and new items that are similar to those that you've already expressed interest in, right? So efficient, so easy for you. But what exactly does it mean when you like a brand, when you like something on Facebook, Dr. Mark uh, Pelletier is an assistant professor of marketing at Radford University in Virginia, and he's here today to talk with us about some of the research they've been doing on Facebook and uh, branding and your likes, what they mean. Dr. Pelletier, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. What a fascinating uh, read for me. Um, The article you wrote about was in The Conversation, 
Uh, here's what happens when you like a brand on Facebook, because we, we're all we're all thumbs upping, you know, giving our little likes everywhere. And a lot of us may not know the actual impact it has on us. And I'm not even sure the 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 marketing people know exactly what impact these thumbs up mean. So so talk to us. What what does um, what does a like mean? Well, I think what a like means is is a lot of different things. Like you were saying, marketers have a hard time because it's um, an interesting term. If I say I like something, generally that implies I have a a very positive attitude towards it. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. I could just kind of think that it's interesting, or I could hate the brand. For instance, (laughs) I am a Buffalo Bills fan. I'm one of um, 800,000 other poor souls that like that (laughs) brand on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, however, a lot of Patriots fans like the Bills fans uh, like the Bills page because they want to rage against it. They want to get that kind of news. But oh wow! For me, it's more of a very big expression of who I am and what's important to me. Because Facebook is is public and it's social at all times. So when we like something, it's not just that we're engaging in this communication with that brand. Um, we're also telling our friends and we're telling the public what is important to us and what we like. I mean, that's as a, as a person that um, I use my Facebook page for my coaching business and I have a really loyal fan base that I, and I can see, you know, uh, money being made on my Facebook page because of the loyalty of my customers. Like I'd be frustrated if I wanted to market to bills fans. And then I had a lot of the people I was marketing to really were actually Patriot fans that just are haters of bills. Fans. Right, and that's sort of the joy and the wonder and the horror of social media for marketers is that in a lot of ways we can start a conversation, but we don't control the conversation as marketers. Mm. Um, you know, the, so there may be a post, uh, a fantastic example is a few years back on Twitter, not Facebook, but on Twitter, the LAPD wanted to have a hashtag of um, p- posting pictures of LAPD cops doing wonderful heroic things and in service. So they started this trend. However, the pictures that were posted, as you can imagine, were not necessarily flattering. So there is an example of uh, a campaign that was started with a good intention, but yet when the users and the, the actual people providing the content to social media got a hold of that, they turned it into something completely different. Mm. So that's why a lot of times marketers do have a hard time understanding uh, social media. And and so the marketing side is kind of one angle of it. The personal side, just as a personal user, right. it, just because I like something too, it doesn't mean, I, I guess, that I have loyalty to that product. Um, it doesn't mean that I that I even want to receive a lot of information about that product. Sure. Let me, I'll give you a couple of examples from brands that I like. And I would encourage um, the listeners as well to, to maybe go through their Facebook page and look at all the brands that they've liked in the history of Facebook because I did that this morning, and I was sort of horrified. Because uh, so, it, it is, it's scary. Like, when did I mark that? Right. Yeah, I've at done what that. point did I – because it, it, with the Facebook, when you like something, you're really opting in to getting promotional messages from that brand. Mm-hmm. Um, so at, at some point – I won't go through some of my more embarrassing ones, but again, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. But I already mentioned the, the Buffalo Bills. So in a reason, I like this because it's a part of me. I really want to express to my friends and to the public that this is who I am. However, I also like a local food truck. Um, and I, I like that brand because I want to get information from them. They can tell me where they're going to be. Hmm. Also, 
I like Starbucks. There may be a lot of people out there that yeah. like Starbucks. And I like them simply because I got bonus points on my Starbucks app. That was the only reason. <laughs> so I'm getting stuff in return, information and bonus points for my like. But I'm also getting social recognition. I'm also getting a, an increased sense of being able to express myself. So not all likes are created equal in any sense of the imagination. And it's, it's uh, I think, an important thing to note that when you make, when you choose to like something, it's, uh, it's noted by Facebook and they're, they're monopolizing or they're, they're monetizing it. Right. They're Absolutely. turning it. And you and I can't remember how to do it. Terry, help me do it. Where you go into your, you can go onto your web page or on your Facebook page and dig a few levels deep and find out everything you've ever liked, and um, you will then see how Facebook sees you. Like it saw exactly. me as a conservative, um, even though I honestly don't remember when I had hit certain sites. It had to have been eight years ago or whatever. And and then, um, but it literally has this incredible profile of you, which is why magically these things keep appearing on your page. I Absolutely. mean, a lot of people don't think that they're like, I just am so glad that Starbucks keeps marketing to me and that food right. truck keeps coming back. And we may not necessarily see that we are, we've tied ourselves to a brand and we don't even know why we have sometimes. Yeah, there could be a lot of reasons. It could be social pressure. Facebook does a, a good job of that now where it'll say, um, your friends and your family like this particular brand. Don't you think you should like them as well? <laughs> so in a sense, it's, it's getting you to like that. But Facebook is an amazing tool. So we can go on there and we're able to connect with all of our friends and family. And it doesn't cost us a dime. And the reason, just like you were saying, is because we are the product of Facebook, right? Facebook is an advertising company. Right. So it's it's not just a matter of that we do all of this and Facebook gets nothing out of it. Facebook knows a lot uh, about who we are, what we like, what we don't like, who we communicate with, when we communicate with them, and how we communicate. Is so, there a way we can lead this better instead of, um, you know, having Facebook, you know, trick us into this or the users of Facebook tricking us into certain likes or guilting us or shaming us into stuff. What, what, what can we do to, to manage it better? I would say just like how you did uh, and how I did this morning, going through and sort of looking at my likes, looking at the things that I have interacted with on Facebook, and then getting a sense of, based off of this, what does Facebook think of me? What kind of person are they seeing? Is it, is it something that's important to me, or is it um, a completely, you know, warped view? Mm. Is some, are, My, this this is ahead. about our identity, right? Oh, very much so. I mean, like, again, Facebook is social and Facebook is, is, is public. So um, whatever you're putting on there is going to be is going to be used by Facebook. Um, so we're not usually used to in day to day social interaction having those conversations not only monitored for their content, but also having advertisements or promotional messages. If you and I are just having a regular conversation, Starbucks isn't saying, hey, try the new pumpkin spice latte during the middle of that. Mm. So it's, it's sort of this, it's a new medium. Um, and, and marketers, and, and I, I think as we're talking about here, consumers haven't quite figured out their level of comfort with it. Does the, the and I, I think what's funny is in a way, we as the consumer seem more passively participating and 
the the corporations, the brands are more actively engaging this. So it, we're probably more likely to be led into this. Like like you were led into getting Starbucks points simply because you you got points. I mean, the only right. reason you if you hit like, you get more points, which could eventually lead to a free beverage. Exactly. And the rest of your life now, you're receiving marketing based on that. And the social aspect of it is very important, you know, especially with the students that I deal with. In fact, part of the reason I, I even wanted to do this with my, my co-author, Alicia, um, we were talking to one of her classes, and they were commenting that the brands they like on Facebook are not brands that they ever purchase. And that, to me, seemed so strange. I, I just couldn't relate to that. But they said they like a lot of luxury brands, or they like a lot of high-end brands, because that helps shape their sort of ideal social identity on Facebook. Interesting. So these, uh, so then a Mercedes picture pops up, and yeah. it's somebody that will never be buying a Mercedes, but it's part of their dream. It's part of their desire, their exactly. identity. Exactly, and that's a big part of that's a big part of marketing as well, you know. And if, and if I'm on Facebook and that's, I want to be known as a Mercedes person, and all of a sudden I start getting Mercedes ads, then that could be a, a very positive thing for me, you know. Mm. Facebook and my friends see me this way, <laughs> and for these teens and young adults, that's a an extremely powerful tool. It's so amazing. I mean, uh, yeah, like some I'm I'm looking at Bentley facebook pages so now everyone right. thinks i have a bentley or i want a bentley right. exactly, and i'm yeah. thinking okay no i told my wife last night i want a learjet and she's right. just like oh, well there you go where would you park it uh, i don't know um it, it's if you can a, afford a learjet you don't need to worry about where you can park it it's exactly well that's the problem i can't afford one but it's it's on my facebook page um, right. another interesting thing that that comes up it seems like is like as you're talking about socializing and the social side of this uh, like social movements, Black Lives Matter, Blue right. Lives Matter, um, you you make one or two – I mean, and you can feel impassioned about, uh, you know, a, a clip you saw of someone being treated improperly, and the next thing you know, you're part of a movement not even knowing you're part of a movement. You just keep getting been, the feed. Yeah. And there's been some some criticism of that because – as we're sitting here and we're talking about what a like means to a brand and what a like means to a consumer, um, m- very important you know, social movements such as that, if, if I simply like something, that's a very passive way to engage in that. Mm. There's some criticism saying that um, just by liking that doesn't mean that I'm contributing to that, right? So if right. I may like a, some sort of breast cancer awareness, um, but yet believe that that's actually doing something for that cause other than giving somebody a number or letting Facebook or somebody know that I'm interested in that, that would uh, uh, prevent me from actually giving money or time to that particular cause. Interesting. It takes place of true activism uh, and getting out and fighting for the cause because I liked it on Facebook. Exactly. exactly. Wow. It's, it's, it's yeah. almost a, yeah, it's a counterfeit to real involvement. Right, exactly. You know, and, and just like we're saying, all likes are not created equal. Some no. can be passive, some can be aggressive. You know, especially for those types of of movements. You know, as opposed to actually getting out and doing something, I'll just like it on Facebook. Well, and it's funny because you feel like you're actively involved because you see it three times a day. Yeah, exactly. And I have already liked that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and in I... fact, even with some of our responses that we had for the brands, it's this term "like" is is very funny again because it it. it insinuates there's a positive attitude. But in some ways, it's, it's really a, a passive acknowledgement that 
I've read it and and I acknowledge what you've said, but I don't necessarily want to comment or repost it or uh-huh. anything like that. It's 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 a very passive type of communication. Oh, I've seen it. And because I've seen other people telling me all the time, yeah, you can't make money on Facebook because the your likes aren't very valuable. And I see it very different. But mine came kind of more naturally, just people naturally wanting to be a part of what I was talking about. And but it all depends, really. And, and I guess some of that because you can buy you, people are out buying likes. Right. Yeah, I mean, these companies yeah, exactly. are aggregating them. Like we talked about the, the Starbucks, that's really a bot like. Yeah, uh, I'm trading that for bonus points. A lot of sweepstakes entries. If you like us on Facebook, you can get an entry into our sweepstakes. Um, that would be different from, as you're describing, your fans. Those those are much more passionate. You probably mm. have much more of a, a you know, two way interaction. Yeah, which is the a joy connection. Of social media, right? You guys can communicate in real time. And sometimes but I guess it's just, it's just the social exchange you're talking about too. Where, look, you you let us market to you, we'll keep sending you coupons. Exactly, exactly. So it's it's a win-win, but it doesn't. But like you're saying, that doesn't mean loyalty. That no. just means, you know. And what's the difference between that and and a, and a say I subscribe to an email list right. or right. something like that? I, that's just old. That's old school marketing. That's that's really just sort of a a one-way, one-to-many type of communication. The mm. joy of social media is I can communicate and see feedback from my customers in real time. Yeah. In order for me to do that, I have to understand that I can't just, as you were saying, quantify the number of likes and assume that, for instance, on this Buffalo Bills page, there's 800,000 likes. I can't assume that I have 800,000 engaged customers that want to communicate with me mm-hmm. because there's different reasons for liking that brand on Facebook. No, oh, it's interesting stuff. Let's take a break, Mark. We're speaking with Mark Pelletier. He is uh, he's walking us through some of his research on Facebook and likes. He is an assistant professor of marketing at Radford University and currently resides in Christianburg, Virginia. We'll get into it, folks. Uh, We're talking marketing, likes, and uh, loyalty on Facebook. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. If you've been on Facebook and you hit the the little like button, the thumbs up button, then you're part of the great conspiracy of marketing. No, you're part of the social network, right? And when you are a part of liking something on Facebook, then it, uh, it makes you a member of a community, right? Then you can get all the great benefits of certain brands. And joining us today is Dr. Mark Pelletier. He is an assistant professor of marketing at Radford University, currently resides in Christianburg, Virginia. And before his career in academia, he had a lengthy uh, career as a practitioner working in sales as a general manager for Cashman Photo Enterprise in Las Vegas. So he takes his uh, interest in experimental marketing and professional selling and uh, bada boom, bada bing, he now works in social network communication and is teaching us about his uh, his learnings there. Dr. Pelletier, thank you so much for being with us. Of course. Thank you for having me. When, um, when I go and I click like uh, for whatever reason, 
And then the brands that are trying to get me to, to you know, be a part of their community to get – and you want to market me at deeper and deeper levels. How do the brands sort out if I am loyal, if I'm just greedy, if, or why I'm with them? Uh, that's very hard to, to, to say. It could be many different ways. As far as can they aggregate why, what was your psychological reasoning for liking that brand – um, unless they insinuated it via you know, something like Starbucks giving you a reward, it's really hard for them to know. Hmm. They can look at your overall social profile from Facebook and try to get a picture of, of who you are and maybe try to figure that out. Um, but outside of that, it's, it's just simply a button. They, they do more quantification, just sort of how many likes do I have, than the ability to know why you like that brand in the first place. Hmm. So, I mean, in a way... There's a lot there's a lot of future innovation that needs to take place because the value of the lead uh, only goes up, right? The more qualified it becomes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and part of the problem that they're facing is like we talked about in the previous segment was customers don't necessarily like this uh like like right. marketers knowing everything about them. There's there's a sense that maybe they they uh, know a little bit too much, so I can't qualify unless I have the proper kind of information. Um, Ooh, that's it is. It's going to start. Do you sense a future battle between privacy? Because um, Facebook's been able to just take advantage of it forever, but eventually and capitalize on it in major ways. But it seems like more and more the battle of privacy is going to come up. I think it will come up. I think it'll come up with older. Facebook users, of which there are more and more. Um, Facebook is is less popular with students now than it ever has been. But I think with older consumers, it 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 will become a problem as people are more aware of everything that is known about them, as people are more aware that when I do interact, every interaction I have on Facebook is measured and used uh, for advertising and, and promotional purposes by Facebook, and, and they're doing very well with that. However, I think with younger consumers, I think with, um, so for instance, like my students, I don't think that they even give privacy too, too much of a concern at all. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, they, I guess yeah. they've never had, yeah, it's just always been part of their life. These were the kids that we were shooting videos of everything they did. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and they. This is how they communicate. It, it, it would be like saying, "I want to take your social interaction away from you," and that's just not going to be an option. You know, uh, hmm. these, these sites and this way of communication is is extremely popular and extremely um, well used. So, yes, I believe there will be privacy concerns, and I believe that they're valid. Um, I just don't know if it's going to be enough to keep people away. People are. On Facebook, on social networks, and they do – they love them and enjoy them. See, I so if- I got mad, Mark. I was mad at Facebook. I'm going to be honest with you um, because I was aggregating this fa- this great kind of fan page, had an incredible relationship with them. I thought the exchange was – I keep bringing other eyes that they can market to. And um, by be- by me bringing good content, so I thought that was that was our deal. I bring the content, aggregate a database, and they can market to it. But what I didn't realize is um, they could also take it away from me and right. start. So then, then they started throttling how many of my people I could reach with my own message. Wow! And yeah, I had to start. And so I had to start paying for if I wanted to reach my whole group, I had to pay more. 
And have you noticed that? So, like, so I mean, I can send a message to my forty-five thousand people, but it's not going to necessarily get to everyone. And um, and I noticed that. It, but if I want it to make sure I get it to everyone, then th- th- I can just pay more. Wow! I yeah, so pay. that's interesting. And so they're they're making money not only off of the information that they're gathering, yeah. from your listeners, but also from you trying to reach uh, those listeners, my own people. And but these were yeah. my I aggregated these people. Right. I I worked for these, and um, and then they they were able to throttle that list. So as a businessman, I started thinking, hmm, maybe this isn't quite worth it because at what point can I never get back to my own list? You know yeah. what I mean? And without continually paying Facebook, uh, meanwhile they're still marketing other people to my list, right? Right. So it's uh, I think it's a weird experiment. But again, the companies keep paying for it, and I can see where I make money on it. Do you sense um, is Facebook is are they the giant? Are they the 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 number one money making social media site? That, that they know yeah. how to do it, I guess. And yeah, absolutely. But but think about it too. So if it's a social networking site. And, and I want to go on there to to talk to friends, even though we could we could have a whole other segment about what really are Facebook friends. Right. But talk to my friends and, and my family and, and people that I know and express my opinions and my concerns and go on there and brag about things that I'm eating or places that I've been. <laughs> That's really only valuable if Facebook has those people on that network, right? Right. So Facebook's value is going to be the amount of people, the quality and the the amount of people that, that I know on that network. Yeah, that's true. So, huh? Yeah. So as they make it more difficult for, for you to communicate, they're going to – it just makes sense for their business model. Oh, that's try right. to keep and get as many new people as they can. That's why whenever there's this – um, thing that goes around that Facebook is going to start charging. No, they're not. They don't want to start charging because yeah. they want to have as many people as they possibly can on there. Well, and so what will happen? And I guess that's what will happen. So a guy like me will not spend money on Facebook. Um, which, if enough of us did that, then the markets would demand. They'd change their policies. They'd throttle less. Everyone would get back on. All the businesses and brands would get back on. And it was, it's just market forces. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 that, and that's even taken place. I mean, um, GM a couple of years ago decided that they were going to still have an active Facebook account, but stop advertising on Facebook. So they were going to try to still engage with their customers. But on Facebook, you have a, a, some advertisements on the side of your page. Right. They were going to stop doing that. They didn't have enough return on investment for that. See, that's so good. It, it's even sort of how do we um, figure this out. Like we said, we're not used to having advertisement, promotional messages in our social conversations. <laughs> so right. as, as interesting as it may be for, for us, uh, marketers are still trying to kind of figure out where does that play? How do I fit into that? Is, what advice would you give as we wrap this up to the, just the end user? Like I look at my wife who is a Facebook expert. She's the one that's helped build my page. And right. I think, um, but I mean, because now you can you can do everything on Facebook. You can have it be your news aggregator. You can have mm-hmm. it be everything. Is there anything that would empower the face the end user more um, when it comes to their brand selection and just their choice of likes and dislikes? I would say just knowledge. Understand what Facebook is, the business model that it has, the role that you as a consumer play in, in really being the, the, the product of Facebook, that it is an advertising company. 
if you enjoy and you get a lot out of the social interaction and, and, and the communication on Facebook, then keep doing it and enjoy it. Don't stress out too much about it. But be knowledgeable of what you're telling Facebook and what you're telling advertisers about yourself. Yeah, yeah. Buyer beware. And, and get in and read the fine print just so you can see where you fit in the, the hierarchy. Mark Pelletier, thank you so much. Great work there. Keep up your great uh, work at Radford University as well. And everybody, you can go look for his article uh, on conversation, uh, the conversation. Here's what happens when you like a brand on Facebook. Stick with us, helping you uh, live healthier, happier social media lives right here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Halloween is upon us, folks. Decorations are up, candy is stored, and of course, costumes are being bought. Joining us today with our own uh, is our very own Caitlin Thomas to talk more about this holiday hmm, and to inspire us with some new costume ideas. We're going to call this segment Caitlin's Costumes. Yeah. Oh, I like that for today. Just today. Just It'll today. only work today. Uh, <laughs> you, okay, you okay, Jeff? No, no. Jeff, you okay? Jeff. I'm just get a little yeah. scared when people start talking about Halloween. Right when she put that <laughs> witch, the witch hat on. What uh, what do you dress up as, Caitlin? Well, see that I, everyone wants to be really creative. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody wants to have the most creative costume like, and weird. Mm-hmm. I got I read online that more than 157 million Americans plan to celebrate Halloween this year. Wow! With eight in ten millennials saying they were planning something fun with their friends, like cool. a costume yeah. contest. Total spending last year was expected to top 6.9 billion dollars. Six point nine billion and costumes and decorations. And how many and of parties. how much of that is like candy corn? I don't That's, know. I mean, tens I'm of millions. I'm not either. Gives me a sugar high. Yeah. Okay. But the most important part about Halloween is the costume. Is it? I mean, that's what it's become. I always thought it was the children. Well, but don't the, don't your children didn't they plan for months when they were little? Like, I want to be this yeah. for Halloween, and it was like April. Yeah. Yeah, they think about it. It's always on their mind. So I wanted to find some of the most creative costumes. Okay, cool. Or, weirdest costumes yeah. I could find on the internet. So I searched for it, and here's some weird ones okay. that I found. There was a group that was dressed up like a French kiss. Okay. So they had, you know, kiss the scary band. Oh, the scary band. They had okay. their makeup on, but All then they were say. wearing French clothes and carrying French bread. <laughs> so they were a French kiss. Oh, that's cute. That was funny, right? Yeah, that's really funny. Until you get arrested. Uh, there was one guy who made the best of his situation. He had had one of his legs amputated. So he dressed up as the gingerbread man from Shrek when he has his leg off. <laughs> so he was walking around as oh, the one-legged cute. gingerbread man. See, but that's, that's a hard one to pull yeah. off. <laughs> it was good. but And then um, another group was dressed like up as grayscale. So they were completely like head-to-toe gray. gray. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. They dyed all their, all their clothes gray. Yeah, everything's gray. Yeah. Um, my, I think one of my favorites was the baby Energizer bunny costume. So he, like, had the drum and everything. Uh, oh, really? Cute. And it was just a baby in a rabbit outfit. Yeah, in a rabbit outfit. And then they'd, like, attach, like, these... And some babies gyrate and just keep Hello. moving like a, like <laughs> like a, an energizer a bunny. bunny. That's cute. Um, this one man got really lazy and he didn't want to spend money, so he dressed up as Jabba the Hutt. But he didn't really have a costume. He just, like, wrapped himself in a big tan comforter and yeah. just, like, laid sideways on the couch <laughs> at the Halloween party. What are you, Jerry? I'm Jabba, Jabba the, the Hutt. Hutt. That's cute, I guess. And I laughed. Yeah. Oh, this was a good one. This is a family one, if anyone needs an idea. Okay. The parents were dressed up as orcs. 
okay. from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And their babies were dressed up as little hobbits and they had them stuck inside cages. Okay. Because they were little, you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. creative. They were so cute. And they sounds put little like, hairy This sounds like a lot of work. I like to just put some sunglasses on. Tom Cruise, risky business. We've won two costume contests, by the way. You and your wife? Mm-hmm. What did, see, what did you dress up as? So she was a Tootsie Roll and I was a Tootsie Roll Pop. Oh, and then one. this is the best one. We just dug through the attic and found some Christmas decorations. I wrapped some lights around my arms and she put little miniature presents on her shoes and wore a tree skirt and a green sweater. And I wrapped my arms around her and we were a Christmas tree. Christmas tree? tree? That's cute. That's genius. That's real. And you won the contest. Two years in a row. That's genius. That's pretty neat. See, I, we make a big deal out of this costume thing. What's your best costume ever that you've ever actually I don't took know. Out this public? year this year my boyfriend and I are dressing up as Leslie Nope. Oh really? And, and Ben. And Ben. Yeah. From uh Parks, Parks and, and Rec. Rec. You should have had him grow a stash and he could have been Ron Swanson. D- <laughs> I mean, he's got a stash. You know, he's I not don't, quite like big enough to be a Ron. I Swanson. don't dress up much. What have you ever dressed yes, up? What's yes. your craziest? My costume? best was um, es- was it is is it Esther Prynne from the no. Scarlet Letter? You just made that up. No, your true. wife I have was a picture. Esther Prynne. I no, I was Esther Prynne. Oh, and um, it was in high school, and I because we had just read the Scarlet Letter. <laughs> And I was in a dress, and um, I was with child, and then I just had a scarlet letter on my dress. Oh, my. Did you win any awards for that? Did no, you get some dirty looks for I that? actually was asked to leave. Yeah, I've seen some. And yeah, that was just pretty bad. from family. Like, I've seen some pretty bad costumes. I, yeah, it, it's... But it is Halloween. That's the fun of this. That's what's so exciting. Right. That's why I'm glad you gave us some ideas. I did want to point out, I yeah. went to the costume store the other day, and they did tell me to be cautious of buying clown masks this year. Yeah. Because of the clown scare. Right. They're like, cops are going to be out. If you're wearing a clown mask, you're going to be a target. It sounds I'm just scary. saying... Yeah. Look out for the clown mask. Uh, there's a guy that's Avoid starting those. an entire movement, Clown Lives Matter. Well, I, yeah. So it, I read a tweet that was like, oh, so you're going to profile that clown without yeah. even getting nah, to know that's them? That's the problem. And I was like, and here we yep, go. we are. We are going to profile those profile clowns. Profile away. Caitlin, so what? He's you. holding a knife. So mm-hmm. what? It's all so good. It's not it's a big deal. So just Happy... look out for those. But be creative. Have some yeah. fun this Halloween. Happy Halloween, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number three of the Matt Townsend Show. Ho, ho, ho. If you've missed uh, any of the other shows, you've missed some doozies. Last hour, we interviewed the Mad Hatter. Uh, who's running for president. He's like in the 30th in the nation for president. Because it's Mad Hatter Day. It's Mad Hatter Day, and he's also representing the Tea Party. Interesting interview. Uh, quite the uh, personality. So you're going to want to go back and find that on iTunes or Stitcher. Go to BYUradio.org. 
Uh, we've also we've got a great uh, topic coming up in a few minutes. We'll be talking about how music can make employees more cooperative. Depends on the music you play and, and how it actually makes you a, more of a team member than if you play other types of music. Hmm. Mm-hmm. How does the music we play on the show make you feel? It makes me feel a little jittery, a little twitchy. Yikes. It's a bad place to be. Yeah. Tell me about it. That's me. We've, uh, we've also got some, some great stuff. We're going to do a little uh, Townsend Theater in a few minutes. We like uh, every once in a while. Jeff and I like to break out a little theater. Theater of the mind, we call it. Theater of the mindless, we call it. Um, just because we, we, we hear a story now and then and we, we just want to act out certain th- scenes from stories. So. Did you do any acting growing up? Uh, no, but I did live with four women. So I learned to act the nice. way they wanted me to. It just made things better. Sure, I want to do the dishes, sis. I'll be on that. It's great. Great acting job. We'll talk about all that fun stuff. Um, our prayers, again, our, our boy, wishes of just the best. Oh, we need to pray for the southeast, folks. Uh, Hurricane Matthew is creeping in. And is uh, the the governor of Florida has basically said people are going to die. Don't mess around with this. Get out. Get out. Get out. Two million people uh, need to move out of the way of this hurricane because um, people are going to die. Basically, is the clear message they're sending. So keep your prayers uh, directed there and your attention there, and pay attention because when they start asking for money for the Red Cross efforts, uh, step up because it could be ugly, they say. So we'll get to to some of that uh, talk throughout the show. We also will get to our heroes of the day, obviously. We'll visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation as well, find out what's going to be on their show at the top of the hour. But before we get to all of that, we must start with Sadie Nielsen and find out what's going on with the headlines around the country. Sadie, what's up? Parents may have fewer options to soothe their teething child. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is warning caregivers to stop using homeopathic teething tablets and gels. The FDA is looking into reports of adverse events related to the products, including children who may have seizures after using them. The agency warns that the tablets and gels may pose a risk to infants and advises parents to take their child to a doctor immediately if they experience these seizures or difficulty breathing. The FDA is currently testing samples of the products. It says it will let the public know what it finds. As hundreds of thousands of people potentially in the path of Hurricane Matthew fled inland Wednesday, not everyone was evacuating. In Charleston, South Carolina, which likely is to see the powerful storm's impact this weekend, some people were boarding up businesses. Officials cautioned residents of Florida, South Carolina, and Georgia not to wait to decide whether they should stay or go. Florida Governor Rick Scott warns residents they had 24 hours to get ready or better yet, get going. More than 1.5 million Florida residents live in 12 counties under evacuation orders. That includes a mandatory evacuation of the entire city of St. Augustine, Florida. The most famous mall in America is giving its workers Thanksgiving Day off. But that doesn't necessarily mean no shopping will take place at Mall of America on Turkey Day. The mall announced Wednesday that it will close its operations, which include a movie theater and the amusement park Nickelodeon Universe on November 24th. That means 1,200 employees who work for the mall will be able to spend the day leisurely eating turkey with their families. We are excited to give this day back to our employees, said Jill Renslow, Senior Vice President of Marketing and New Business Development for Mall of America. And finally, yes. 
Matt, do you love Nike? Yes. I more, mean, more than your Mac? No. Okay. Well, then you probably won't be too interested in this. But, oh, yeah. but, what? Nike has announced the release of a small batch of Back to the Future inspired self lacing sneakers. Oh, I saw these. Yes. Now I can't even bend over to tie my shoes. Bring in the choir. The shoe manufacturing giant said that 89 pairs of the Nike Mag sneakers, modeled after Mary. Oh, Marty McFly's futuristic Nikes from Back to the Future Part 2 are given away via lottery. So you can't just buy them, um, but you can purchase a $10 uh, lottery ticket on the company's website or through the Nike Plus app. Oh, come on! I know. The company said the self-lacing shoes have an adaptive fit feature that senses the wear and tightens or loosens accordingly. Do you... I don't know that I'd wear these out into places because... You have to be an OG to wear these out. O- OG? Do you know what that is? Offensive guard? No. Original gangster. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I, well, I've got that. Mm. I'm the O. Right. I'm, I'm more O than G. Yes. Old gangster? <laughs> Pardon? I didn't say anything. I thought I said something. I heard you, Jeff. So he did say something. Oh, no. So he didn't. You didn't hear her say that she heard she heard me say something. Huh? I couldn't hear that. What? It's okay, old man. <sighs> oh, what? Who? I I am the original. Are you? Not gangster though. Used to be. We just used to be called guys. The OG. Okay. Thank you, Sadie. You're welcome. Great news if you're into shoes. That there rhymed. Hey, as we uh, top off this next hour, there's a, a, just a new thing we wanted to do because we we thought it'd be fun. Not not that you'd find it interesting, but Jeff and I, you know, sometimes we just have a lot of time and get bored. We we are going to do a new segment called Townsend Theater. And now welcome to Townsend Theater with your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, special guest Jeff Simpson. Thank you, Jeffrey. In Townsend Theater, what we like to do is tell you a story that's in the news, and then we will act out certain scenes of said story. For example, now in France, you can dial a number. You can actually dial it from anywhere, and you can talk to someone in France. <laughs> Hello, bonjour, France speaking. You'll actually talk to France. The country. The country. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's not a joke, folks. It's for real. Promises the very French woman in the advert. It's the first phone number that connects anyone in the world with France. Not a particular person in France, but with France, the country itself. So you could be friends with France. Friends with France. The French number has, uh, has been initiated. All you got to do is dial France. Eventually, you'll be able to choose up to 100 countries to call. And just talk to the country. The number is uh, 33176-498-498 if you want to call France. I think we just dialed in right there. And you get there, and then you just talk to France. 85 million tourists go there each year, so why wouldn't you want to call France before you go to France, get to know France on the phone? So... uh, as part of the theater, Townsend Theater, we, we, um, we're going to take some roles. I will be playing the role of an American. And Jeffrey will be playing the role of France. 
We. Oui. Uh, by the way, currently 5.14 p.m. in France. I'm calling now. Why are you using the old rotary phone? <laughs> and I wish, I wish we had upgraded the phone system. Just a phone call alone could take forever. Uh, let's just say move forward in theater time. And now uh, the phone is ringing. Hello. Hello, is this France? Oui. Hi, France. This is Matt. Hello, Matt. How are you doing? That is good as be expected, Matt. You sound Russian, France. Is this Russia or France? Matt, do not waste my time. You have a question for me. I, I have a question for you. Okay, so France, what time is it right now in France? Uh, right now it is 5.14 p.m. Cool. Hey, France. Yes. Do you eat those escargots? What do you mean? Do you eat those snail things? Because those are gross. Oy, stupid American. Okay. That's, so, no? Do you have, France, do you have the, the really good food, like French fries, that came from your great chefs? Matt, the French fries are not from France. Don't you know? No. Do I have to teach you everything about France? That's why I called. End scene. Brilliant! No, we ended the scene. I was just complimenting you on... Thank you. You didn't compliment me. Oh, you did a great French-Russian voice. Right. That's Townsend Theater. Glad we could bring it to you. A lot, a lot of radio stations quit doing radio theater. Don't know why. And we just illustrated why. <laughs> Nailed it. Hey, uh, if you're into olive oil, which how could you not be? A man who got stuck headfirst between two rocks on a Rhode Island jetty. That's the wrong olive oil. The story's about olive oil, but he's using Popeye's olive oil. Um, that's gotten me out of some jams sometimes. So the guy got stuck between two rocks, and he used olive oil to get out of the sticky situation. Add a little bit of EVOO, okay? I want to add Extra virgin just olive oil. Wow, it's a little bit slippery. That's Rachel Ray. Uh, she was on the scene. Trying to pour all of extra virgin olive oil, EVOO, uh, on the poor gentleman. And um, then one firefighter grabbed one leg. Uh, they, they got it. His, ch- his chest was stuck between these two rocks. And then they got the EVOO brought to him by Rachel Ray. And then they just wiggled him back and forth. And the next thing you know, goes the weasel. Not that, not that the guy was a weasel, but he's out. But uh, after two and a half hours of work... The man then had to go to the hospital. He's treated for hypothermia, small injury to his foot, but fortunately, smelled like a little olive oil. Mm, a little olive oil, a little uh, balsamic vinegar. Mm. Dip some bread in that. <laughs> hey, uh, if you are a pizza lover, and who wouldn't be because today happens to be Garlic Day, the day we celebrate 
garlic. Um, there is now a camp for you, a pizza camp for adults. This is a real-life pizza camp. It's called uh, the Real-Life Pizza Sleepaway Camp for Adults. And uh, what you do, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a summer camp for adults. You go to Minneapolis, hang out in the woods, and you have pizza all night. You have it for lunch. You have regular activities, of course. You get a lot of pizza swag, pizza tote bag. You're treated with a mega pizza dinner with delivery pizza, pizza snacks, and you make your own pizzas at the pizza bar. And then you get to sing songs like that from Weird Al Yankovic. What could be better? I don't know. How about get a life? Not to be rude. I mean, no offense by that, but <laughs> adults should not be going to pizza camps. You don't like pizza? I like it, the pizza. Don't get me wrong. I like pizza. But pizza camp for a bunch of adults. Come on. You know, like it, the pizza? <laughs> I just said I like it, the pizza. But grow up. Parents don't need to go to camp. Parents need to have the pizza when their kids go to camp and celebrate. I'm just saying. You're a monster. I don't mean to be rude. Just kind of tired, starving, wanting some pizza. Pepperoni and sausage? Mm, yes. Or are you more of a Canadian bacon and pineapple I like guy? that as well. I like everything on pizza but sardines. I don't know why that was ever put there. No olives. No olives. No peppers. Really? No onions, especially. Wow. You've got a very delicate palate. Okay. We're going to be going to the next uh, topic. We'll take a break. (laughs) And when we come back, we're going to talk about the power of music to motivate your employees. If your employees seem a little sluggish, a little, you know, down, either send them to pizza camp Maybe that's why they're down, because they just got back from pizza camp. They're all bloated. But uh, maybe just change the music. When we come back, we'll be showing you some of the secrets of music and how it creates better cooperation. It might even save you some money in your company. might make your day better, too. Stick with us. We'll be right back talking music. Research has shown that music in retail settings can add value to the shopping experience. It can improve the moods of customers, increase engagement, and increase the chances of a purchase. Less studied, however, uh, are the effects that music can have on employees. With us today is Kevin Niffen. He is a professor from Cornell University to talk to us about this interesting study. Kevin, thank you so much for being with us. Sure, thank you. I appreciate your interest. What a what a fun idea! And um, I mean, I, we we've known right. We've known in the retail setting, you know, play certain music. You kind of lull people to sleep. I guess they're more willing to open their books, their their wallets. I mean, pocketbooks up. Um, talk to us about your interest and your research of what it does to teams and cooperation. Right. So part of the motivation was actually uh, students in one of my classes identifying that they worked in a retail setting. 
for a given summer that was had a certain theme tied to a musician. And when they started the summer, they enjoyed the, the music by that person. Uh, but then after maybe a few weeks, and especially by the end of the summer, uh, not so much. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so this idea that there might be a conflict or at least potentially different effects for music, uh, whether it's retail or not, uh, but retail is a starting point uh, for employees compared to customers, uh, helped set us on this path of figuring out uh, what influence music might have on, say, cooperation is what we focused on for, for employees in a workplace. What, what was it about the music that, that has anything to do with cooperation? Yeah, so there's a couple aspects. So the, the, the big picture main finding was that uh, we found that happy music helped effect more cooperative behavior than uh, unhappy music. And uh, we have two studies in the paper. It's in this Journal of Organizational Behavior. Uh, just came out, and um, the second study has a control condition. So we have happy music uh, and what we call unhappy music, and we can talk about that, um, and then no music. And there was no difference between the unhappy music and no music, but instead um, we tell us interpret the effect of the happy music. So the happy music um, affected a, an increase in uh, a sustained increase or elevated level of cooperation um, in, in the study. And happy music uh, was Walking on Sunshine. What were some other uh, of the happy music hits? Yeah, so um, uh, admittedly, uh, we have, you know, a sample, by definition, a sample of music, uh, both for happy and unhappy. And, and so one of the things we say in the paper is really we're scratching the surface of the relevance of music in the workplace for employees. And um, so lots more could be done with uh, you know, finer grain distinctions of types of music. But for us, we had happy music that included, like you said, the songs you mentioned. Um, we also put in Brown Eyed Girl and the theme song to the TV show Happy Days. Um, and then Unhappy Music, we had a couple of songs on a loop as well that were uh, part of a genre that I had never heard of before uh, going into this, that, this, that, that research uh, called Screamo Music. Oh, wow. It sounds... Very unhappy. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> uh, I mean, I ran these studies, and so after I listened to the music maybe 20 times uh, or more, uh, I could start to hear a melody to it. But um, but most people would not hear any melody or anything good about it. So we, we did have people, um, most people, I mean, they have fans of their own, but um, we did have independent raters for the happy and unhappy music, and we asked them to assess the music in and of itself, and they, you know, affirmed that, that our one sample of music was happy, the other wasn't. And also, the happy music had a rhythm to it, and the unhappy music was arrhythmic. Hmm. And so that's one of, the, one of the distinctions we really highlight in the paper, this, not just happy and unhappy, but rhythmic and arrhythmic uh, music. And, and this doesn't, the music doesn't just make people happy, but it, it makes them cooperative is what you've been able to, to validate. It actually right. increases cooperation. How did you come to that conclusion? So we have two uh, nice little figure in this paper uh, where we uh, tease apart the, the influence of mood. So happy music puts people in a better mood, and if people are in a better mood, they're more likely to cooperate. So um, so that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we also, though, have uh, a finding in, uh, from the study that shows that happy music, and again, happy by definition, uh, in our case, is rhythmic music. So happy slash rhythmic music 
has, a, has an effect independent of mood. So it's not just that people get a better mood and then they're more cooperative, uh, but that there's something independent about it. That uh, And so we, we go in the paper describing uh, and talking through this idea that that the rhythm, that uh, the beat of the rhythm, you know, people just sort of synchronize uh, um, not just, you know, maybe their foot tapping to the beat of the music, but also appear to synchronize uh, their behavior, in this case, as part of an economic decision-making uh, game. We had 20 rounds of a game, um, uh, a public goods game it's called, but that people people became more in sync with each other uh, with this music that has had a sync or a rhythm to it. So hmm. um, so those are the two explanations that we talked through, that there's that, that mood plays a role and that there's also just this independent role that has to do with something arguably more primitive um, about getting in sync with the music and getting in sync with the people nearby you at the same time. Isn't it? But if you've ever, um, where was it that I've seen it? Like, it, like at a, cause I do a lot of speaking and, um, a lot of times they'll do these like pump up songs. So right before you go on, they'll try to get the crowd in there. They'll put some music on and you do, there is an energy that the music creates that does make my job easier as a speaker. I mean, I've kind of known yeah. that forever. This is just validating it. There's something about, and you, yeah, you said it's primitive in a way, but there is something just about getting getting in sync. Yeah, that's a great anecdote. Uh, and I play music sometimes before some of my classes, and I can't say until you just shared your story uh, that I maybe I'm unintentionally uh, been helping uh, yeah. find the pump uh, of my room. But um, yeah, in the field of exercise science, there's... Um, uh, a researcher at this place called Brunel, which has um, he's uh, pinned the tail on uh, beats per minute as being very important for exercise uh, research, at least. And the sweet spot is uh, 120 to 140 beats per minute. Really? Uh, in terms of uh, enhancing performance of in, in athletics or yeah. or making people perceive less exertion. Um, and so, so that's another of the kinds of dimensions that you know, the, the research we've done could explore. Um, um, and there's there's websites online where you can, it's just for fun, you can type in the name of songs you're interested in and uh, people have uh, set it up so without any fee, you can just figure out the beats per minute. So, oh, that's, uh, so, <laughs> so they, yeah, you can get in rhythm and, and uh, you know, this isn't new. I mean, I just remember, do you remember when the Bulls kept taking the championship? Let's get ready to rumble or whatever song they'd play at the beginning of their uh, – oh, no, no. They had a different song. And they'd play it at the beginning of their um, of their introductions, and it would just jazz everyone up. It would get so everybody so charged up. I mean this is – but this is the first time I guess we're bringing this discovery into the OD world, right? Organizational development. So that, that's, that's the point we make in the paper that uh, music is one of these taken-for-granted aspects of the environment that – um, that people haven't paid, that pe- people in marketing have paid a ton of attention to in relation to customers, but in terms of uh, influence on employees in the workplace, that's uh, been uh, been basically uh, ignored. Uh, like if we we did a search of organizational behavior textbooks and uh, looked up um, where music appears and um, some of the top journals in in the field, and usually it'll come up only in the context of say studying the music industry as opposed to studying the influence of, of music. So it's fun. I, I like to ask students if you, uh, you know, where do you hear music or how, much, how many minutes or hours of the day do you, do you have music as part of your environment? 
and um, and then I usually tell them I'll. Uh, I expect that if they paid more attention to, um, to their environment, it's probably higher. They're probably underestimating it. Hmm. Supermarkets are a fun uh, case I like to point to. I mean, um, like the next time you go into a supermarket, try to like take some care to see if if they might be playing music because it's there's just a lot of places where music is played and we uh, we're not always consciously uh, attentive to it. Yeah, you don't even know it's happening. We're speaking with Kevin Niffen, and he's t- teaching us about his uh, latest research on how upbeat music can make employees more cooperative. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion, find out what Kevin thinks is the future of this. Does this mean we're going to be listening to more more and more music during work? and um, Or, you know, how do you sneak it in? How, are, how can you just as a manager, as a leader, sneak in the benefits of his research? Powerful stuff, folks. Uh, the subtle stuff we don't even pay attention to. We'll get more of it in just a minute. Stick with us. Tell me that song doesn't just make you want to hang out at a little burger shop, wear your leather jacket. Hey, hey, Fonzie. Joining us on the phone is Kevin Niffen, and uh, Kevin is a professor uh, of, um, I guess, a visiting professor at Cornell University. Uh, He earned his Ph.D. in anthropology and teaches at the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University. He is the author and or co-author, I think, of um, the article. Actually, the author of the article, "Upbeat Music Can Make Employees More Cooperative." He's been working with his team on figuring out the impact that music has on cooperation on our teams. Kevin, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. Sure, happy to be here. Great touch with the uh, entry music. Wasn't that cool? I mean, I just felt better listening to it. I don't. And plus, the memory—you go down memory lane. Does in your research. I guess your somebody's style or like of music doesn't necessarily matter in this because the, you saw more cooperation coming out of a certain style of music. Yeah, there's a couple. I mean, uh, some of the pitfalls with this is uh, we acknowledge this in the paper and future research will need to look at it, but music can certainly uh, cause some trouble in the workplace and, uh, Hasn't been explored too much, except uh, qualitatively. Some people have noted surgeons. Right? Uh, people yeah. hear these stories of surgeons listening to music, so it's kind of easy to imagine uh, who's all working in the surgery theater uh, at the same time. It's not just the surgeon; it's also say the anesthesiologist, nursing uh, staff, uh, and they might not all share the same taste. Right. So, um, so there is something. There are there is care to be taken in, with respect to um, to the relevance uh, or playing music in a, in a given workplace. And that's one of the one of the areas of care, certainly. Where do you see this goes in the future? How, how can, um, I mean, I guess it's one thing to play music all day, but it's another thing just using music at, at better times, you know, in our, in our meetings better or whatever. How, how could we incorporate this into our workplace better? Yeah, so uh, it's interesting to realize so our focus on, and our finding related to cooperation, but uh, cooperation isn't the the goal or the endpoint uh, for a lot of us for most of our day, or right. for most of our workday. You know, uh, for some people it is. 
and if you play it out right um, in workplaces where cooperation is is going to be rewarded and prized and valued and beneficial for everybody uh, throughout the course of the day, um, those are probably the workplaces where music is played um, a lot and maybe even all day. Uh, and I'm thinking, say, of the uh, of the auto garage or mm. um, you know uh, workplace settings like that. Now, uh, so so. With that as background, right? Uh, yeah, the research has uh, the research is focused on cooperation. It's not focused, say, on productivity or creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so we we would expect that that the finding is specific to cooperation, and that um, and there's actually uh, I've learned after this article came out that uh, there are people who have been selling mainly on the basis of intuition, not science, but nonetheless. Uh, people, some companies have been purchasing their services, um, coming up with a playlist that might that, that they have arguments why it would increase or enhance productivity versus, say, uh, cooperation huh. with our focus. Yeah, well, because I, I could see it, and you brought up an example in your article. Um, for example, when you're doing a workshop or a, when you turn and you ask your people to to turn and do a brainstorm and work together on a project in a, like a class, it'd be a great time to put on happy music. Yeah, I've had students actually, after they read the article, uh, test out the, the findings on themselves with their, when they have a, a work team setting, like a, a work team meeting preparing, say, a class presentation. And, um, and without fail, and I don't think they're just telling it to me because they know what I've, the work I've done on it, uh, without fail, they, uh, they report back that, that, their work, that their group was uh, more, more productive as a group because of, they were being cooperative, um, and people maybe share more, uh, get more ideas. Hmm. So, um, so I think it does. Yeah, has some immediate takeaways in L- regards to that. Let me ask you this, and this might seem weird, um, but I'm kind of biased because I do. I I help couples learn to communicate and work together on problems. And um, is the test more on the interpersonal level? Is it between two people, or is it between groups? Cooperation yes, in groups or Position. So in our case, the experiment uh, had people working in groups of three, and um, and as a, and the groups of three did not know who they were. They knew so it was they were stable groups of three. So they knew the decisions that uh, each other were taking from one round to the next, and it was twenty rounds of a, of an experiment. Hmm. Um, and they knew the other person was in the room, but the room had roughly twenty four people in it. So we'd have eight groups of three, and they wouldn't know each other. Reason being is that um, these kinds of studies, if people know each other and have a chance to even chit-chat just for a small amount, then their cooperation just goes off the roof uh, um, because cheap talk or small talk has a lot of has a lot of value. Yeah, bonding. So, yeah. Um, so we have those controls built in. So, so but to answer your question, uh, groups of three. But I like your uh, juxtaposition with uh, with couples. I think that's a fair and Sensible, but it might be uh, powerful, right? So now the next time you have to go talk about a difficult topic, money in your marriage, sex in the marriage, maybe put on some happy music and see if it changes anything, see if it puts you in rhythm together. Yeah, I mean, the music that we had playing in the, in the, as part of the experiment wasn't particularly loud. Yeah. It was, uh, and so, uh, and, and look at retail settings, right? They're not, mm-hmm. I mean, some places music is loud, but oftentimes, say the supermarket example, it's not. Right. So, 
So I think, uh, yeah, like I said, it's a good, uh, yeah, I like your takeaway on that. And two, I guess, just around our families, if you want, you know, if today's, if it's Sunday or Saturday, I mean, the day we're going to clean up, you know, and get ready and and take care of our yard and stuff, maybe put on some happy music and and, and just see the effects of it. I think, like you said, a lot of this might just be intuitive to us anyway. Yeah, uh, uh, social glue is a fun phrase to think about uh, in relation to this and, say, other uh, other other types of these taken-for-granted aspects of social life in the workplace and out, uh, like eating together. So, so I, would, uh, I would put, you know, say, happy music in the background mm. or eating together as... Um, um, as types of social glue mm-hmm. that, um, you know, they help sort of lubricate uh, the ties that people have um, uh, in ways that, that are really simple and cheap, right? I mean, that's one of the things we highlight in this paper about music, that uh, you know, a lot of workplaces spend a lot, of, a lot of time, like weekend time, which pinches on people's, uh, you know, family commitments. Yeah. Uh, a lot of... A lot, of, a lot of time on uh, off, off-site retreats. And so here's something simple, just play music, very inexpensive and non-disruptive, and, uh, and to get a lot of thanks buck. Man, I'm telling you, it. I think it works. And cheap is good, right? And cohesiveness is great. Man, just driving in your car with your kids on a long trip. We need cooperation. Keep it happy music. Don't just play, yeah, don't just play some tragic you know, opera, that might set everyone off. Good work. Thank you, Kevin Niffen. Appreciate your great research there, and uh, keep up the great work. You can find more on Twitter at KevinNiffen.com. Niffen has a K in it, K-N-I-F-F-I-N. Look him up. He's doing some great stuff and a lot of fun stuff to learn about in the future. At Kevin Niffen. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. We'll present this idea about music and cooperation. Stick with us. BYU Radio. I get to host the show, Traveling with Eric Dowdle, with my daughter. She's so great. I love doing it with her. We have fun. We talk about the food, the fun. One of us does. (laughs) Traveling with Eric and Autumn. (laughs) And I'm so lucky to be here, too. Why don't you come with us, Wally? Traveling with Eric Dowdle. New episodes Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Cloverleaf, Butterflake, Swirl Rolls, all made using roots, bake, and serve dinner rolls. Simple things that make life better, roads, bake, and serve. Your homemade pizza favorites, made with roads, white dinner roll, frozen bread dough, by shaping, topping, and baking. Simple things that make life better, roads, bake, and serve. On Top of Mind, we learn the secrets behind everything from whistling. No kissing 24 hours before a performance uh, because it, it can make your lips mushy. Um, <laughs> to parasailing. No, I'm afraid of heights. You are afraid yeah. of heights? Yeah, I'm afraid but of you're, heights. But you're way up there all the time. How does that work? I, I love being two or three miles above the ground, but if I'm on my rooftop, it's spooky. Smart, insightful conversations every weekday on Top of Mind, 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio.
Keep walking. Welcome back, friends. Ah, walking on sunshine. No other time of the day do I walk more on sunshine than this moment when I get to toss it down to our good buddies uh, at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Governor. <laughs> sunshine, four days. Four days of sunshine. Four hey, days. Hey, here's the deal, guys. What's um, the deal? The reason we played that song is we just had a researcher on the show that his research has proven that when you listen to happy music, you actually are more cooperative. That so, makes sense to me. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and then when you listen to energy level. Yeah. When you listen to unhappy music, less effective. So cut my life into pieces. Exactly. And that's where we end song. <laughs> <laughs> that that is a great example of unhappy music. What song was I listening to the other day? Uh, oh, uh, it's called "I Hate Everything About You," and, <laughs> and laughing the what? whole time. Yes, it's uh, it's my wife's angry song. Is it she, that she bought when Her she feels like angry? Yeah. Wow. She's like, here, Spencer. Spencer. It's not necessarily about me. <laughs> Why don't jump to conclusions? That's not what she said when we were talking last night. <laughs> Trying to solve some of your family issues. Oh my goodness. Anywho, um, so here's my idea. During the BYU games, we play when BYU's on the field, we play Walking on Sunshine, which literally would kill you in like 0.3 seconds. No. Because it's so happy. No, and then, literally. Would kill you. <laughs> literally, you would die. Why do you want to walk on the sun? Literally, Chris Traeger. <laughs> and sorry, then, sorry, I'm and, and, No, that's fine. And then, uh, and then when, when, uh, when Michigan State's on the field, we play screamo music. I hate everything about you. Uh-huh. Okay. Basically. Or hate is a strong word, but I really, really, really don't like you. Or cut but you in pieces, like you. whichever one you were using. Papa Roach. Um, the clowns. We just play a song like this. Those daffy. Because clowns daffy are freaking clowns. people out now. And it would freak out the well, Michigan State team. Isn't there a good reason behind that? Yeah. But see, don't, don't you think? Pretty serious subject. Yeah. There are some super weird Halloween decorations, too. I'm not a big fan of Halloween, and this is not helping. Isn't it? Clowns. That, there, I saw something on Facebook the other day where uh, Home Depot in Canada had to ban some of their Halloween decorations because what it was is like this—it's like this creeper guy with his hands around his eyes, and you can you can like stick it to the window to scare people. Oh my heavens! <laughs> to make it look like someone ah! is looking through your window. That is creepy. That's terrible. What this are is they what we're thinking? Doing. This is what our society is doing. Now. I know. And they're giving a bad name to clowns. Yeah. Happy uh, Halloween. <laughs> they have a good name. <laughs> are you afraid of clowns, Jerem? I'm not afraid of clowns. But if, like, let's just say you got out of the shower and there was a clown standing there. That would be weird. Yeah. Let's just say I got out of the shower and anyone but my <laughs> wife was standing there. Even my daughter. I'd be yeah. like, ha! <laughs> that would be weird. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Remind me to tell you the story about the. Uh, no, no, I'm not even gonna go there. No, not no, gonna go no, there. Not gonna go there. Not yeah, gonna yeah, go yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. But you'll, Save I'll it. remind you off air. Save just, it. Yeah, in-laws staying in our house. <gasps> oh, come on. <laughs> oh, interesting. Send come in on, the clowns. mom-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it yeah. was. It was a rude awakening. Oh, for me. <laughs> somebody walked in on you. Oh boy. Yes. Yeah. Oh boy. 
Yeah, that's You're hard. really good at sports teases. Yeah. But that, that tease wasn't your strongest. Oh, you don't know what happened, though. It is. It's not just on the surface that, yeah, you think you know. You have no idea. So Now, that's a good tease. No idea. Now, that's a good tease. <laughs> Do you have video? No. Okay. No. This, I just thought, I'm very visual. I like how this music's still playing. You like that? Yeah. This is this is the clown music. Yeah, that's that's creepy clown. So if you just think of a clown and this music, it's just bad. Hi, <laughs> kids. Oh my god. The, the clown in uh, Inside Out scares my daughter. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, it's pretty intense in the movie. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It represents. Yeah. Clowns. It's just something about it. Now it's funny because mimes not as not as scary. No. There's no stories they don't make about sound, mimes and they don't wear anybody. super weird, creepy makeup other than just a white face. Mm-hmm. In fact, right now we're playing some mime music. Right now, you just can't hear. It. Beautiful. Yeah, it mm. doesn't even bother me. Uh, That's you, old mime music, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you, you notice that? that yeah, <laughs> it was yeah early '70s, I think. Um, what uh, you guys still doing your show? We are, are going to do that. They were actually today? not. Oh, you're not. Wait, what? Uh, what? No, I thought we were doing it, Jerry. We just came in today. Oh. oh. Uh, you two might oh, want to get on day. the same oh, page. Yeah. Oh, yep, yep, yeah, we're doing, we're doing it. it. It's <laughs> oh, we're still doing it. So what, what's on the show other than clowns and uh, sunshine music? There are two clowns on the show, plus... <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jerem, Jordan, and Ben Bagley. Nice, <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> nice. Way to get Ben in there, by the way. <laughs> got to give Ben his due credit, right? That's right. He's got an increased two role. Two clowns as... and a psycho. You can pick which <laughs> one is a psycho. <laughs> yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll you, take that role. You, you pick whatever I'll one you want. I'll take that role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, be careful. We have that sound. So, um, uh, okay, yeah. So, what actually is happening on the show today? Yeah. A lot of sports content, namely BYU football versus Michigan State. Is this a better matchup for BYU than playing West Virginia or Toledo? Mm. Even though Michigan State traditionally has been a really awesome Killer. team. Yeah. Uh, plus, uh, what percent chance do you give BYU to win? We'll talk to the coordinating producer as well of a football live. With Steve Young mm. from the NFL Network. Cool. That debuts tomorrow, which is very cool. And uh, Steve's uh, book, uh, co-authored by uh, Jeff Benedict, uh, comes out next Tuesday, by the way. It's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. That's a good show. Represent, man. Represent. Oh, plus Harvey Yunga, BYU's all-time leading rusher. Really? Yeah, how many games is he giving Jamal Williams to break his <gasps> career rushing record? Interesting, yeah. Ooh, I want, yeah, I want to hear what he has to say about that whole thing. And... He's been very cool with Jamal since Jamal was here. He's, Harvey's awesome. Plus, Heather Olmstead, uh, the women's volleyball coach, they're ranked 13th. They play tonight. Uh, in fact, there's a doubleheader on BYU Radio tonight. Wow. Uh, of women's volleyball at 9 Eastern, followed by women's soccer. You guys are busy. Oh, you know it. Holy cow. You know it, brother. So just, just, watch, just watch your backs. That's all um, I'm saying. Why, why do we need to do that? Just because just, you never know. When you turn around, there might be a clown. <laughs> when, when someone tells you to watch your back, yeah. they become the number one suspect. <laughs> I, know, I was saying it for someone hey, else. Hey, you text a friend, hey, yeah. watch your back. Watch your back, dude. <laughs> Wait, why? What? <laughs> I'm just hearing stuff. Okay. I'm not, I'm not saying I would do anything, but I've just heard a lot of talk about people that might want to scare you. You backpedal okay. better than Brian Logan. You got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, did I backpedal better than Brian Logan? Yeah. That's a compliment. 
That guy's got wheels, and he's did it as a back wheels forever. Wheels and dills. Wheels and dills. Okay, gentlemen, uh, sounds like a great show. Knock them dead and watch out for the clowns. Thanks, Matt. Stay sweet. Peace no more out. walking on sunshine. That's right. Don't do it. You'll burn. You'll burn. Oh, it's ouch. literally you will die. Ow, Point three seconds. Ow. Ow. <laughs> See you, kids. Goodbye. <laughs> that is um, – I, I sense a little fear. They're afraid of the old uh, clowns. I told my kids how you take care of a clown. If a clown ever comes up to you, you hit you you hit him in that nose. That nose is very tender. Wouldn't it just make a squeaky noise and make him laugh though? Would it? I don't know. It's swollen and red. Hmm. Not good. You don't think it's hollow? You think there's actual substance to that nose? Yeah, I think it's their nose. If they're a real clown. I hate to get technical, but yeah. Hey, um, crazy story. What's the biggest fear? If you're parking your car on the top floor of a rooftop parking, nine stories tall, my biggest fear would be that, boy, I hope I don't drive off this building. A man who failed to stop when pulling into a rooftop spot on a nine-story parking garage in Austin, Texas, rammed through protection wires and avoided a deadly fall when his axle got wrapped up on a safety wire. And there he dangled on the side of a building nine stories above the ground. 24-year-old man who was not identified uh, by police was eventually able to be pulled back in the building through the sunroof. Thank goodness he had that sunroof. Totally. That's why I always get a sunroof. You never know. I've got one in my 2004 Solara. When you'll be dangling on a wire, like a bird on a wire. I'll be able to hold myself up with the tape from my tape, tape deck. I'll just unravel it, and yeah. it'll, that'll be the rope. That's what's neat about your car. A lot of cars don't have tape decks anymore. The things that MacGyver could do with my car. Oh. Hey, by the way, this driver was miraculously able to climb out of the sunroof, make his way back safely onto the garage while onlookers down below were just looking up in awe, dangling, but not doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. Apparently, the driver accidentally hit the gas instead of the brake, which some do. It happens. He made it out safe, folks. Another story. Of success. Lo- I love this song, by the way. Bird on a Wire. Are you kidding me? Little Willie Nelson. Mel Gibson, Goldie Hawn. That's a, that's a movie. Oh. Sorry. This is just a song that's been, you know, out there forever. Famous song. Bird on a Wire. Oh, and in this case, more like a car on a cable. <laughs> As we wrap it up, folks, you know we like to end with a hero story. But in the end, remember, we're all heroes, right? We can be heroes for each other. The town rallies and finds a toddler lost in a cornfield for 20 hours. A three-year-old boy lost for 20 hours in a cornfield where stalks reached seven feet tall has been found safe and sound in Wisconsin. Dayton Logalbo was playing outside near his home around 2 p.m. Saturday when his mom saw him wandering into a cornfield 
north of Antigua, reports the Wausau Daily Herald. She alerted authorities that she couldn't find him on her own. Police then searched with helicopters, drones, canine units. They didn't even uh, ask volunteers uh, to help um, until a little while later. Unprompted, some 500 people signed up to search for Dighton, who was found Sunday morning, police say. Tom Andrasco says he was searching in a section of the cornfield with 70 others at around 10.30 a.m. when he found the toddler sitting cross-legged on the ground. He was cold, wet, scared, but otherwise in good health, though he was taken to a local hospital as a precaution. Um, you know, in the end, he went home safe, sound, and home again with his mom because of the you know 500 volunteers, all of the emergency personnel as well. That's all it takes, folks. Uh, apparently, this 10-year-old boy suffered from autism, which is uh, one reason he disappeared into the cornfield. So heroes. It's just people that are willing to be there for each other. Sometimes you're not even asked, and uh, you still can step up and be be a hero for another. As, again, we're worried about those people in the south uh, east side of this country with Hurricane Matthew We're going to need a lot of heroes, and sometimes the best heroes are those that just make it easier on everyone else and get out of there. Get out of there, and uh, let's uh, let the heroics just be plain and smart. Our prayers are with you, uh, those in the southeast, and all of those that have already been hurt and impacted by Hurricane Matthew. And so remember that in your prayers tonight as well. We'll be back again tomorrow. Take care, make it a great one, and let's look after each other.